Hey everyone, this is Two Guys Five Movies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. I'm uh, Frank Pellicone. And this week we are going to be looking at the top five Palm Door winners, <clears throat> according to Frank, mm. uh, of all time. Uh, Frank, why the Palm Door exactly? Do you have like is there I mean, special significance to that award in any way to you? Full disclosure, we were just talking about Academy Award winners, and then we started talking about the Palm Door. And yeah. I looked up what had won the Palm Door, and there were some good movies on it, so... So, for those that don't know, the Palm Door is an award handed out of can. It's the top prize uh, throughout the years. It's also been called the Grand Prix during different uh, eras of the Cannes Film Festival. You know, I think that when I was young, like, something went in the palm door meant that I felt like I had to see it. That's what I was... I don't necessarily feel that way anymore. Like, over the past... Well, they gave it to Fahrenheit 9-11 one year. Yeah. Over the past, like, 20 years, I maybe have seen a few. Yeah. The White Ribbon I've seen, which won it in, like, 2009. I I genuinely enjoyed that movie. Yeah. But um, most of them are stuff that I either haven't seen or have no interest in. I think the last one that I saw that I... From the palm door is... Tree of Life, I think. Oh, yeah, I've seen Tree of Life, too. Yeah. <clears throat> so, well, this week we're going to look at the top five of all time of those movies that have won that award. Um, <clears throat> let's just jump right into it, then, okay? because there's not a lot to say about the award itself. Uh, it's an old award that goes back to, I think, 45 or so. Yeah, when, when you look at the winners of this award, considering it's like an annual award in the same way that, you know, like Best Picture is in the Oscars, um, I think there's a lot more overall, like, merit to these films. Like, I think they're more important films from, like, a like a historical context, you know, in terms of, like, like movies in general. Um, whereas I think the Academy Awards are, I don't know, like, a lot of years there's a lot of throwaway Best Picture winners that aren't like don't necessarily stand the test of time okay so we have a lot of good movies this week mm-hmm. uh, all five are really solid movies. i would argue that any week we have a lot of good movies five um sure yeah, yeah. um we'll go with that <laughs> uh really well respected movies yeah. i should say yeah. uh, if you want me to clarify that uh well respected by critics these movies so uh Number five is Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, which comes out in 1974, starring Gene Hackman, John Cazal, I think that's the way you pronounce it, Harrison Ford, Robert Duvall, Terry Garr. It's pretty much like anybody from the 1970s that had any kind of significance in terms of acting is in that movie. Uh, So you want to go ahead and talk about that a little bit and um, why this would be on your list? Um, So Hackman... Um, I don't know what his job is. I guess he's like a private investigator, sort of. Um, that is recording. What is it? An affair, right? That he's recording. And it seems to be an affair, right? It starts off in that open area in the city where he has three or four people recording at one time, and it's a couple. That he doesn't really know what their deal is, but he thinks it's an affair. Yeah. So, he records what, upon further listening, he feels is evidence of someone being murdered. And, generally, the movie is about him 
like becoming obsessed with the idea that he needs to figure out if there actually was a murder committed or whether it had happened or not. Um, really tense psychological thriller in a lot of ways, but very like small and intimate. Um, kind of falls in with, well, another movie on this list specifically, but like just the general idea of the time that like, I think people were starting to distrust, maybe not media so much, but like, because there were so many other ways, you know, that were becoming more prevalent during this time period to like capture events so that your perception of things could be based not just by your memory or like how you viewed it in the immediate sense, but like that you could replay and re-see, you know, like things happen, you could hear things again. Um, well, and also at this time, a lot of people think that this was inspired by the events of Watergate when in actuality it wasn't, but that's certainly in the public consciousness sure. by the time this movie yeah. comes out is Yeah, record, definitely just like recordings had a, and audio. I had a president brought down by, you know, recordings. So um but a pretty small movie, especially when you consider Coppola's like other films of this decade, but um really well done. Um really great performances. Uh, Hackman especially is maybe my favorite Hackman performance. I mean he's such like I don't know, there's a certain um, loneliness to him, I guess. Like, as a character. Yes. Um, and it's got the, I don't know, like, the Nehru jacket 70s vibe that I, like, love. That's just kind of, like, <clears throat> I don't know, very, I can't even explain it. Like, 70s movies are very, like, grimy or grainy, maybe. I don't know. But it just feels like, like a lived-in movie. Like, that they're filming like places that people actually inhabit and lives that people actually have. And I don't know, that's one of the things I love the most about the seventies is that feel to those movies. Do you think you said it's your favorite performance of Hackman's? Do you believe that it's his best performance? Yeah, probably not. I mean, I think, um, I think French connection is probably a better performance. Mm. Um, it's a very understated performance in a lot of ways. Um, very like, controlled and reserved um i mean he, he seems like a even though he's incredibly like talented at his job he just kind of seems like a schlub in a lot of ways and and every man how, how do you take his character exactly in this movie what 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 do you think of the character itself i don't know i always felt like he's a guy that's just kind of he's a guy that just does his work and he's good at what he does and his work is like his life in a lot of ways. And again, like I think there's a certain measure of like sadness to his character. Maybe that you're not supposed to feel sad for him, but definitely that like there's not there's not a whole life going on inside for this man outside of like what you see in the movie. And I think that's why it's so easy for him to become like obsessed with the idea of like solving, you know this mystery yeah I, the the one element i guess you you get a couple scenes with him i guess a couple pieces of him one that the Ter terry gar character he goes and he sleeps with her early in the film and then i guess tries to give her money for rent and um <clears throat> she starts asking him questions and he doesn't want to answer 
the questions that he takes offense to and tells her he's not going to come over again. And then later, during the convention, one of his competitors records him in secret and kind of tricks him, and he gets really upset and angry over the yeah. fact that he was recorded. So there's this element of the character that I think is interesting that while he's spying on people and he's this kind of voyeuristic character, he doesn't like people doing the same thing to him uh, whatsoever. Yeah. Um, he's a very private person. Yeah, again, I think that's because there's not really much to him aside from just yeah. what he does. And I don't know. I mean, is there some element that it's like he doesn't want people to see how empty he really yeah, is? Yeah, I mean, that's possible. Again, I think there's a lot of that in like the 1970s, especially with. It's sort of a, you know, like you think about like the early, the first like half century of film there, and the leading man is like strong and confident and the problem solver and a lot of times like almost an archetype and i think that starting in the 60s and well into the 70s that um that trope kind of gets turned on its head where the leading man is usually like fallible and neurotic or you know like has like neuroses to him maybe or some psychological issues and it's not not really anti-heroes although i think that that i think his character is an anti-hero in some ways not necessarily a hero i don't know what would be the anti part of anti-hero i don't think there's anything necessarily heroic about what he does but he still is like the driving force to whatever you know mm-hmm. like advance the events in the film but he's also not, I don't think he's like necessarily an admirable character, or I don't think that he's... No, because he takes the money. Yeah. I mean, he's not, I don't know, and it's it's, it's hard for me to explain, but I just, I really feel like there's a lot of directors that started to look at the traditional, like, and this is probably a funny, like the traditional, like, Rock Hudson-esque like manliness of actors mm-hmm. prior to that and sort of change the perception of what those characters were. And not to say that he doesn't come off as being like, I guess like a manly character, but he's not a traditional, you know, although I maybe cause he's like reserved and private, but it's, but, it's, but it's not portrayed as a, as a stoic thing necessarily to me. It's, it's not portrayed as a strength. Like it is in the movies you're talking about. It's yeah. It's a weakness here. I think. Yeah. Or something that keeps him from, like, truly connecting as a human with, yeah. like, other humans. Right. Um, which I think is another important part of the movie, and from a, like, a broader perspective, the idea that, you know, we're kind of, like, disconnected from, like, that's where you start to become disconnected, I think, as a society from each other, just because there's so many other ways to experience, mm-hmm. like, the world at that point through like audio recordings and you know like television and I mean, this guy's whole like life is invested in you know the recording of sound and in a lot of ways that's like distances him from actually having like those real interactions and i think that speaks to like what a lot of people you know maybe that like cultural malaise or whatever that extends to now although it's like far worse now but just that sort of like the breakdown of like the idea of people being good neighbors and 
people knowing each other, you know, like knowing your community where like your circle starts to decrease at that point. <clears throat> I don't know. I honestly don't know much about Coppola's filming of this movie or like how he feels about it personally. Um, when I, I saw this movie after I had seen Godfather 1 and 2 and I had seen Apocalypse Now at this point. Well, when I was a kid, when I watched this. And I was really like, I, I loved it like so much when I saw it the first time because <clears throat> like I felt those movies were really like grand in scale and sure. like they, I mean, obviously the Godfather movies span like decades and are just like really like larger than life portrayals of crime in America and apocalypse. Now, like you could talk for hours about that, like just on its own. Um, to the point where several times over the course of my life, I've actually like flip flopped as to whether I love or hate that movie. Um, but such a huge like movie in so many ways. And the conversation is just so small and so taut and so like well-crafted that I don't know. It's just, it's really like my, my favorite kind of movie, which is something that feels like personal and it feels like you really are just getting like, you're just being told a story, but with enough skill on the part of the director that. I don't think you're necessarily forced into interpreting it any one way. Like, it's a small story without being, like, a simple story. If that makes sense? I think all the pieces are there for you inter to interpret it the way that Coppola wants you to interpret it. Yeah, that's probably true. I, I don't think that there's, like, deep mystery in this movie. But I also don't think that it you it holds your hand in telling you that. It's not no, it doesn't. It. No, it's very subtle, <clears> I think, in the way yeah. that it does it. But <clears throat> I think you can piece the movie together through enough reviewings without needing to necessarily stretch anything whatsoever. It also, it, it marks, and this is again something from the 70s that I love, that it marks the use of sound in film as not just like a score, but sound of like ambient events is an important part of film. And to me, this is like the conversation is the perfect almost like beginning of that. I mean, there's other stuff that has that too. And obviously, Blowout comes like a few years later, I guess maybe, or like maybe like a decade years, later. Oh, about a decade. It's, I think um, is blowout. And very similar in concept, you know, to the <clears throat> Travolta recording sound and realizing that he may have captured like someone's death right. like via audio. But there's also other small things like um deliverance. Um where it's possible that I can't remember the character's name, the guy with the glasses got sh the guy with the guitar. Yeah. Um, got shot and that's why he fell out of the canoe and like if you listen to it and like <clears throat> turn the volume up you can kind of hear a gunshot like right before he falls over and it, it's things like that where directors really start to like apply like more subtle layers to their storytelling and it's not just people on like a sound stage you know like almost like filmed stage acting which in a lot of ways I think like early film kind of reminds me of there's a lot more nuance to it and and for as, like, far as, like, Coppola fell, like, much later in his career, like, in my opinion, um, you know, this is him at, like, his most masterful, I think, leading up to, like, his, you know, like, his most epic film. Yeah, I mean, that's the amazing thing, is, like, Coppola, this is, like, right in the middle of Coppola's streak of yeah. the movies he's writing and sure. directing and producing, you know, you got Godfather mm -hmm. this, Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now, he... He had written Patton. Written Patton. Um, produced, produced American Graffiti. Yeah. yeah. So it's, 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 it's a... It's he had a, also... He had done a couple movies for Roger Corman in the late 60s. Um, the Terror and... 
something else. I can't remember what. Um, that both are like small movies again, like just horror, small horror movies, but really well done. Um, I don't know, like it. Coppola is one of the more like fascinating figures of like the latter part of the 20th century because when I was when I was young, I would have told you Coppola is probably one of my like top five or ten favorite directors of all time. Absolutely. Um, but then like. I guess it's Jack, maybe, in like 96 or 7, whenever that comes out. Um, That's just bewildering. And then there's just nothing good after that. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just age or a change in your... And even the good movies that he has, that he does in the 80s and the 90s, are certainly of a lower quality. Yeah, they're flawed. Peggy Sue got married and... um, Dracula. I mean, there's always some interesting things in them. Like, they always... They hold your attention. Like, Jack is an abomination. <laughs> right. And no offense to, you yeah. know, Robin Williams, who's just, whatever, doing his, his best, I guess. But one of the most baffling movies I've ever seen in my life. I have no idea why Jack exists. And, yeah, like, I don't know. But even Dracula. Like, Dracula is a visually interesting movie, but it's got a lot of flaws to it. I mean, it's not, like, a great film by any stretch of the imagination. And definitely, like, a weird step into genre filmmaking for a guy I guess like everything in genre that he does but he elevates everything else and I'm not necessarily think that Dracula is elevated but yes I think that's that's a good way of putting it after Apocalypse Now there's nothing he really elevates I don't yeah even though he continues to just make like sort of like subversive genre movies after that um but for again my favorite decade of film and one of my favorite movies of that decade, um, just from a storytelling standpoint, um, like you said, it, it's, it, it tells you what you need to know to understand what's happening in the movie. And I think that's important, Yeah. but it doesn't do it in a way that feels like, and it has a great twist. Like, we don't want to talk about the twist yeah. if nobody's seen it, but I mean, the, the twist is good at the end. I yeah. mean, like the, the, the end, um, if all of it feels right and earned for the character like everything that happens in that it's also in my opinion one of the first real i don't want to call it neo-noir but one of the first like i don't know like deconstructed noir maybe Mm -hmm. where it takes the elements of a noir movie but then it kind of yeah because like the the beats are there but the presentation of those beats is like more artistic and more I see what you're saying. Existential, yeah. maybe? Like, it's an yeah. existential noir? Yeah, I, I think we're going to talk about this more in the next movie, probably. Yeah. But I, I think there's similarities there, obviously. Um, but um, I also think Harry Cole isn't the noir hero. No, 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 either. that's, that's like, what I'm and, saying. And, and, like, you were going back to what you were saying yeah, earlier, so is he's not that guy. He's... he's He's representing, like, he's a placeholder for what that character would do yeah. with none of the charisma or, I don't know, like... Edge? Yeah, it's just, he's oh, not... Sam Spade or Marlowe. Yeah, or you're basically like taking, um, I don't know, like, just a man, like, that actually could exist and putting him in a role that would be, like, an archetypal role for, yeah, like, Spade or Marlowe or... Well, you're making Jimmy Stewart almost into... Philip Marlowe, as if that's yeah, what I'd, happened. I'd like to see that. <laughs> um, I don't think I don't think that works very well. It'd be interesting. Yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, like if 
it's not a very long movie. Um, again, not like an overly complex movie, but really well done. And if you enjoy like crime thrillers, it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Um, the only other note that I had is uh, David Shearer's piano score in it is like perfect yeah. for that movie. And I, actually, all these movies to some degree have really great sound tracks to them. So to, to get off to get off topic, like slightly. Do you think that, like, John Williams ruined movie scores in a lot of ways? Like, for as iconic as, you know, the Star Wars score is, you know, the Imperial March and the Rebel theme or whatever. Like, don't you think that in a lot of ways, like, after this time period, like, scores just become about, like, orchestral bombast? Like, it's not so much, sure, like, subtle... One of the movies we're going to talk about later, like I was reading about it a couple weeks ago when we first talked about this list, um, just for some context. And like its score was like one of the top like musical pieces of like that year. Right. And it's like... That doesn't happen anymore. Like I think like Duel of the Fates is fine, but it's just... It's the same thing that every other John Williams music piece of music well, is. Yes, I mean to some degree it's become like this kind of um, cookie cutter commercialized yeah. stuff after Williams. And what we I think I think you have to go in the genre of film now to find anything that has a halfway decent score possible. Maybe even indie genre film, because in a lot right, of ways yeah. like you watch like some Blumhouse movie, and it still is like, yeah, like cacophonous strings, and I don't know. Like, I'll be interested. I I saw that. Um, not we talked about this off air last night, but not that the movie needs to exist, but the remake of Suspiria that they're doing, Tom York's doing the sound for it. I actually have some, and I I'll be interested to see like what he does with it, considering he's not heavily involved in. Yeah, scoring. Movies. No, he is. He's done oh, a is lot. He? Oh yeah, really? Since um, Crumb, maybe he did. He did something around that time, like ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, where he started scoring movies. The other guy from um, the guy from Blur, uh, does the same thing, mm. and both of them have done like. I think Tom York's done a number. I, maybe I'm wrong. I'm, yeah, I'm I, sure. I thought that he had done like a number of scores. I'll have to look it up. I have no idea. Yeah, I, I didn't know that he did scores. I mean, he's like pretty good with... I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like Latter-day Radiohead, but like I certainly appreciate his use of like ambient sound yeah, and sure. like his ability to manipulate, you know, like electronic sound or whatever. But no, I mean, things we didn't talk about. I mean, the score, like, you know, last week when we talked about The Shining, like in, you know, late yeah. 70s, like, yeah, it's... Perfect for the movie. I mean, like, you know, all of those movies that we talked about, like, when you really think about it, had good sound to them. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to talk about score, I think, in this, like, this arena without being able to, like, play, like, portions of it and then right. discuss, like, sure. how it so perfectly fits. You know who's really good with score, and then we'll get off to the next movie. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, is one of the best, and not necessarily score, maybe more soundtrack. Yeah. But use of, like, music... And just hitting a note or a line in like perfect, um, perfect like synchronicity with what's happening on the screen. Like he's, well, yeah, he's I pretty... mean, Magnolia, his use of Super Tramp and Amy yeah. Man are like brilliant in that. And then um, Boogie Nights, the soundtrack is really good. Yeah, um, <clears throat> Boogie Nights to me is like 
to me, like, the best example of his use of sound, but we'll never agree between those two movies. No. Um, it's fine. <laughs> uh, in terms of scores for this movie, it is a 98 on Rotten Tomatoes um, from critics, a 90 from audience. Uh, Ebert gave it four stars. Uh, Ebert, in fact, gives all these movies four stars, so you're pretty much in perfect alignment with Ebert. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how that makes you feel. It's but, fine. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, I couldn't find much criticism, honestly, of this movie. Um, the the one that I was finding from audience members is, has to do with the Harry Call character, the, the Hackman character, that they find him hard to connect with. But I think we've probably discussed yeah, that already. Yeah, I think already. that's probably on purpose. Uh, sure, absolutely. And I, I think that um, we probably already discussed why that might be and um, addressed that already. Um <clears throat> Any last thoughts about this movie whatsoever? No. Um, just again, like, and one of the things, there's a couple movies that there's some more, like, abstract conversation, but one of the things I love about about the Palm Door, like, going, especially going back when we talked about this and looking at the winners, is it really is just about well-done films. You know, like, there's not a lot of glaring problems in them. And this movie, from start to finish, holds your attention. It's incredibly well-crafted. <clears throat> you know, it's just it's, it's slow. It's slow, and methodical. Yeah, but but, but it's well paced. Yeah, but yeah. methodical because it's about someone whose whole life is it's about methodology, right? Yes, basically. Yeah, absolutely, so absolutely, it's very much follows the character yeah. in terms of the pacing. And but really good. And if you've yeah. never seen it, um, or if you've seen like Godfather and Apocalypse Now and want to see something else co-blooded that's really good, it's it's definitely worth checking out. It's absolutely. worth whatever the two hours absolutely yeah really good performance by hackman um you get to see harrison ford pre-star wars um yeah really young yeah he's really young in that movie um good good soundtrack to it um and really uh you know tense you know well-filmed action yeah if you don't know anything about what's going to happen it it it, yeah stay on it definitely it definitely catches you off guard Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to number four. Number four actually is a movie that inspired the conversation. Yeah. Um, it was filmed in '66. Uh, um, is um, Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, yep. and uh, starring David Hemmings and Vanessa Redgrave. Um, it is a '87 from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and '84 from the audience. You want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie? So Hemmings is a self-absorbed like photographer that's trying to connect with the I guess you'd call it mod scene in late 60s Britain um kind of a vapid character doesn't really care about anything but taking his pictures and trying to mess around with some some ladies um during a while shooting photos in a park um realizes that he may have captured the before and after of a murder, including like the body, like under some bushes, um, then becomes obsessed with trying to figure out whether or not this murder occurred, um, is sort of stymied at all turns by like the people that he's trying to investigate has a weird break in the middle where he goes to listen to the Yardbirds play. Mm-hmm. Um, including like them smashing their guitar, I guess Pete Townsend or no, not Pete Townsend. No, Jimmy Page. Yeah. Whoever is in the Yardbirds. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I guess, like, again, like a male character that's not a hero, necessarily. Or particularly likable. Yeah, like, like pretty, pretty, 
I don't know if like deplorable, but just like there's nothing really to speak of to him aside from the fact that I guess he's like kind of handsome and has a job that women find attractive, but like not 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 a very good person necessarily. Sure. Um, I mean, there's a scene that in 2018 in that movie that comes later where he ends up having sex with two young girls who want him to take pictures. Take their pictures, yeah, and then he, like, kicks them out. Well, he kicks them out, but it's also, like, the build-up to them having sex where they're trying on clothes and he kind of comes up, you know, and finds them and kind of manhandles them and tears the clothes away when they're trying to cover themselves up and then it turns into, you know, them... Being actively engaged, but the build-up to that is very, very... Yeah, it's um, a little little uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable in today's age. So. You always have to view, like, movies from the perspective of the era they're in. I mean, you can't, like, legislate in the past, basically, like, based on our current moral... I mean, I, I, I think what's attempting there is that those girls are teasing him, and that he's just doing... That's a game. I I, I, yeah. get, I get the idea. Um, I mean, obviously, with our increased sensitivity, the idea yeah. that like no means the no girls the girls early on demonstrate discomfort though. Yeah. Before any of that happens, and that's what I find watching it today, given what's happened in the past year, it's a little uncomfortable. As well. I also think though that what what Antonio knew is illustrating there is that it's kind of like a like a business contract almost that mm-hmm. like they know what he does and he knows what he wants and they think that by giving him what he wants. They're going to get something from it. And they then, expect it. Yeah. At the end of that, they they want to take pictures, and he gets upset and tells them they'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. No, no, they know exactly what they're yeah. entering into, and that. One of the things that I like the most about Antonioni, and he's one of my favorite directors of all time, a um, couple of my favorite movies actually, is that he, I think, is much more, much more in tune with like women. I think, and presents men in a more realistic light. Like, again, like, Antonioni's kind of, like, one of the forefront of this wave of what we were just talking about with the conversation of, like, more, like, realistic filmmaking. But um, the men in Antonioni's movies are not, like, particularly likable ever. Um, the protagonist of, um, like, La Ventura is not a likable guy. Um... Jack Nicholson's not particularly likable in, in The Passenger. I mean, there's... A, a lot of Antonioni's male characters are not likable people. So the Hemmings character, I think, is about... A guy who's... Has all these advantages because of his... You know, his profession. And his looks. And... Who's sort of, like, changed... I don't know, for the better... But at least, like, made to be more of a human being because of the events. I agree with that. That he gets, like, sucked into, yeah. kind of. Um, down to, like, you know... I mean, he throws, like, a, a temper tantrum almost when he leaves the Yardbirds concert where he, like... He has the broken piece of the guitar and then he throws it and he's, like, acting like a child, basically. <clears throat> but not somebody that has any kind of, like, self-awareness or the ability to, like whatever like control himself in a lot of ways but then at the end of that movie when you know the mimes are doing the tennis thing and he's willing to kind of sit there and play along with them like it's sort of mm. it, it's maybe maybe that he's been humbled a little bit in some way or that he's 
been like humanized somewhat. I don't know. But the fact that he like plays along and that's the final shot is him going to retrieve like an invisible ball standing in the middle of a field of the same park that like kind of like sparked the entire movie. Um, right. I don't know. It's pretty fitting. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of David Hemmings. Like he's fine in this movie. It's an okay performance. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it does exactly what it needs to do. Um, I love Antonioni's use of color in movies, especially because some of my favorite Antonio movies are black and white. But like this and The Passenger and Red Desert, like his color, like he's got a really good eye for, number one, the juxtaposition of like grays and muted tones with like bright colors um, to make those bright colors stand out. And also the way that he can film things. I mean, England's a pretty dreary place anyway, but the way that he films like the park and stuff and like the greens and the black of like the trunks and whatever and then like juxtaposed with like the garishness of you know like British nightlife or whatever you want to call it um but just a really it's 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 slower than the conversation especially because it has a couple of segments that outside of like character building or like just sort of like the context of the world are kind of disconnected from the overall plot um, yeah. specifically that like we when I was a kid because I saw this when I was like maybe 14 or 15 um, and maybe a little older than that maybe like 16 my friends and I used to always make fun of that yard bird scene it's just like like the biggest like what the fuck like okay so now we're gonna have this like performance but when you look at movies from that time I mean that happened a lot like where like the bands of that time you know and were kind of like the whole art scene in general like music film like you know, painting, whatever, photography, were all kind of intertwined. So a lot of those, I guess it made sense in a lot of ways. You know what it reminds me of? This is completely unrelated to anything else we're going to talk about. You ever seen What's Up, Tiger Lily? The yeah. Woody Allen, like... I've seen it. Um, so there's a scene in that where in the middle of, like, this ridiculous, whatever, like, redubbing of this Asian movie, they go see The Loving Spoonful play. At a club, and it's, like, basically the same thing, but a complete parody of it. And they're singing a song about going fishing, and, like, that's always in my mind, like... And I know that it's not supposed to be funny, but it's always really funny to me. I'm not sure if this isn't, to some degree, a parody as well. Maybe. I mean, and again, maybe of, like, the lifestyle that he lives, or the ridiculous... Like, the completely, like... I'm pretty sure that there was television shows and movies that used things like this by this point in 66... That might have done this. Yeah. That he could be referencing. Um, <clears throat> but always, it, it, it makes me laugh every time yeah, I see no, that scene. Like, it, I, it, it feels really out of place. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's also during a point in the movie where things have won haywire for him a little bit. So sure. a lot of those scenes do feel kind of disjointed, disconnected in some ways. It, it actually, it's one of the things I like the most about this movie, and it's why I like the conversation so much, and if we ever talk about it on a future podcast, why, like, I really love Blowout, is the idea of a guy who's just trying to live a life that, because of one circumstance, gets sucked into something that's kind of, like, larger than himself. Mm-hmm. Like, the idea that, like, a normal person can have, like, events conspire around him that, like, drag them into something greater than just the day-to-day you know, process of their life. I think, um, I think Antonioni set this up for multiple readings. Like, unlike the conversation where I think 
if you watch it enough, you can figure out and piece everything together and there's a story being told and there's character motivations and you can figure all that out. I, I, I think there's a lot of stuff just like left open for you to interpret the way that you want to in blow up in well, yeah. a number of different ways, unlike the conversation. I mean, Antonioni has a lot more of like a, I don't know how to say this, that sounded like pretentious, but he's a much more European director than Coppola is. Sure. I mean, and Antonioni's more about the idea and the feeling necessarily He's much more than, philosophical yeah, than, than the story. Yeah. And you um, find that among European directors is they're more philosophical than Americans yeah. usually. And again, like a lot of his stuff is about personal identity and yeah. your place in the world yeah. and your perception and how it can change based on like small events or whatever. Sure, and I think like all those themes are absolutely like the main themes of this yeah. movie. Um Again, Antonioni is one of my favorite directors of all time. I mean, I would put La Ventura maybe in, like, my top five movies of all time. And Monica Vitti is, like, one of my favorite actresses. But not that she's in Blow Up. Um, but he's just, like, every time, everything I see from him, it feels... It feels special the first time I ever see an Antonioni movie. Like, I'm always enthralled by it. And... I mean, again, I saw Blow Up for the first time when I was pretty young, and it was one of those things where, it was actually, I think, the first Antonio movie maybe I'd ever seen. Actually, I know it is, 100%. Um, just that it could be, like, I don't know. Like, there, there's just something about the way that he frames shots and the way that he uses color in his, like, later, like, late 60s and 70s movies that it's just really, I don't know. It's hard to explain, like, how it makes me feel. So, I, I've i been thinking about this movie for, you know... I, I watched it again for the first time, probably in about 17 years or so. And I've been thinking about it a lot, and I, I listened... I, I found a lecture online from NYU of somebody who's really into Antonioni and went through a lot of different interpretations. And I found a really good video by a guy named Jackie Grace on YouTube that, that views it through the context of... Um, he argues that it's Antonioni accepting and becoming a postmodernist as opposed to a modernist of accepting that there is subjective, that everything is subjective in its terms yeah. of values and, um, you know, truth, you know, that there's nothing that. objective. I, and, I, and I think that I'm not sure. I agree that that's, to some degree, what this movie's about, I think, but I'm not sure if I agree. I think where I'm stuck, I don't know if I agree that it's Antonioni. It's just him accepting postmodernism, but I don't think he's doing so gladly. I don't know about that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Thomas is pretty... I, I don't feel he's joy, overjoyed at the end of that movie through the idea that... He's bemused. Maybe. He's bemused by the minds, but it's like he's... He's doing it for them, not for himself. When he throws the ball back, and he he likes the idea that they're enjoying themselves. Yeah. like you know. But it's and also I think that's the growth of his character. Like sure, because about. he's willing to do something for someone else that right. doesn't necessarily. Yes, yes, and there's personal growth in that. No, absolutely, absolutely. I, to me, like the always the, the the crux of this movie always is, and again, like it, it's definitely something that's worth seeing. Like if you care about like important films, or if you just care about like movies in general, like. Does it matter if anybody ever died? You know what I mean? Like, I think that's, like, the big... Like, to me, was always the thing that kind of 
stuck with me is that in, in the conversation, the mystery matters. Like, it matters that you find out, like, the what happened of it. But in, in Blow Up, does it ever really matter? I think that's part of the point. I, I, I think that does does the does the subjective truth of one person matter? Yeah. And ultimately, the answer is no, it doesn't. Yeah, and a, a, again, like, and pretty... And I think it's Thomas coming to accept that idea. But I don't know if it's, like, a good thing. Because I think there are signs in the movie that it might not be a good thing, necessarily. So, the Yardbirds concert, I think, is actually a really pivotal scene when Jimmy Page breaks that guitar and the guitar neck flies into the audience and they act like a, it's a mob scene yeah. as they're trying to get it. And he becomes involved in that mob scene and walks and runs out with the, with the, with the guitar neck. And then as soon as he's outside of that setting, yeah, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter anymore. It's like, he looks at it like, why do I have this? Yeah. And just drops it on the ground. And then someone else picks it up, not knowing even what it is and walks away with it. It's almost like, the object is doesn't have any meaning outside of the context that it's in. But again, and that's it, is like he becomes obsessed with what ultimately amounts to like a handful of pixels in a blown up picture that he took just randomly. Which the girlfriend of the painter says it looks like one of his abstract paintings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, it, you know, it's it, getting like stuck in the minutiae. Of, like, a single thing at the expense of, like, the broader picture, I guess, really. I mean... I mean, the, the, I the, it's, it's almost like a... It's almost like the world has become postmodern. Like, the... Mimes are... Have their own reality and truth that they're yeah. living in. And he's learned to accept that he can kind of delve into these other realities. But it's go- it's almost like it's going to be the masses that control what the overall, like, kind of interpretation of things are. Like, they, 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 the individual's lost to some degree. I wonder if that's why he disappears at the end. Like, rather than, like, just hold him in the frame before the end pops up, he disappears and that feels just empty at that point. And it's almost like the individual or him is being kind of just swallowed up in the rest yeah. of the world. And the mimes are in a lot of ways, like I think indicative of the whole like hippie culture of the, yeah. like the, the cosmic fool, like collective culture mm-hmm. of the late sixties. And I think there's, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think it's growth definitely yeah. like in his character because like it's bookended by those like Mary prankster types. Like, and they, he sees them in the beginning and the, um, the reaction to him is, accepting but dismissive he thinks he's better than them to some degree um he doesn't take them too seriously and it's like there's a much deeper acceptance at the end well also also like that whole like last four to five minutes of the movie is played out in almost absolute silence aside from like a couple of like sounds of like shoes squeaking on the tennis court until the camera moves away from goes to him like to pick up the invisible ball yeah. and he throws it back and then you can hear the sound of like the ball hitting the ground and the ball yeah. hitting the racket so i guess it is about like he's accepted their reality it, it is about the subjective nature of yeah. like reality and again like him being like focused on those small pixels yeah. 
to try and figure out is that really a body under these bushes right um you know that he becomes like so drilled into so yeah um no i i think it's a fascinating movie i think there are a lot of different interpretations which maybe that is antonio and i don't know accepting postmodernism, but um is, is allowing it to be interpreted by people rather than by the film itself or by the artists themselves um yeah but um <clears throat> Another really strong score in this, um, and I think it's really well done because it only music only plays in this movie when it should play. So through a record player, yeah. off the radio, like you know, um, and it's all Herbie Hancock um, jazz score that, like you know, is is, is used throughout it, um, and I thought that worked really well, um, you know, uh, uh, with this. Um, in terms of negatives. Uh, some people thought it was pretentious. Sure. Um, <clears throat> what else was there? Uh, Pauline Kael, uh, New Republic. Uh, this is a contemporary review in 66. She feels that... She feels that like he's not really... Uh, I'll read what she says here. It's obvious that there's a new kind of non-involvement among youth. But what we can't get at is what it's all about by Antonioni's terms. He is apparently unable to respond to or to convey the new sense of community among youth or the humor and fervor and astonishing speed in their rejections of older values. He sees only the emptiness of pop culture. All we can tell is that he doesn't understand what's going on, which is understandable, God knows, because who does? But then, shouldn't he spare us the altitudes worthy of a Time essay or a Reagan speech? Antonioni, like his fashion photographer hero, is more interested in getting pretty pictures than in what they mean. But for reasons I can't quite fathom, what is taken to be shallow in his hero is taken to be profound in him. Maybe it's because of the symbols. Do pretty pictures plus symbols equal art? I don't think that's an unfair assessment. I think it's how much you value those pretty pictures, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, it's actually, like, I, I think she goes an opposite way with it than I take it, like, reading her thing, but yeah. is Hemings, like, a proxy of the modern director? You know what I mean? Like, is it, is it, and I don't, I know almost nothing about Antonioni as, like, a person or anything. I know that he said that he felt a connection to Thomas. <clears throat> so, yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe he's this guy who spent his whole life, like, filming, like, beautiful things, but... Maybe maybe he felt empty. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, any... Saying that, like, whatever, like a quote-unquote art film is pretentious is the easiest attack sure. against any art film. And the way that she, like, phrases it... And I, I like Pauline Kell a lot, actually, like, in her criticism. But I feel like... Like, maybe you didn't do enough to interpret what you were seeing at that point. Like, that's you, like, not wanting to do... I don't mind doing, like, the work in my brain about trying to figure out a movie if the movie is appealing in certain ways. And I think the blowout, or blow-up is, like, a pretty beautiful movie. Mm -hmm. And definitely well-filmed, and even though, again, like, I don't really like Hemmings in it, it's got some good performances. Yeah, I like Ray Grave in it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, she's really good. But, um... For as little as she's in it. Sure. Um, yeah, I think you really just have to get to the halfway point of this movie. 
like I think that's the thing to warn viewers of if you haven't seen it is give it time because yeah. it takes 16 minutes before the story even starts really sure. when it comes down to it. You get character development, I think, in those 16 minutes, but you don't get any actual plot in the first 16 minutes. In fact, like nowadays it's a joke. Like the 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 scene one of the scenes in that is because Austin Powers mocks it. Um, yeah, the, in the first also awesome If you ever see the cover of this movie, like when you look it up, it, it's that scene that Chris is talking about yeah. where he's straddling over the model with the camera. Yeah. Um, so I mean, like to some degree, like even like the beginning, like is a joke now. So for a modern viewer, it might be something that they would look at and almost laugh at. Yeah. Nowadays, but I think you have to make it through like you know the first I'd say like forty minutes of the movie. Yeah, until, I think that's fair. Um, and but it, I think it's worth it. Uh, that that's a really like that's part of the sensibility I think of a lot of those directors from that time period too. That it wasn't as important to get into the meat of the movie so much as it was just to establish the tone before the story. Maybe I don't know. Mm-hmm. It definitely establishes a tone. No, absolutely. Yeah, and then subverts yeah. that tone later right. in a lot of ways. There's actually so. a lot of little subversions throughout. throughout. Yeah. Um, the first time you see him it's you don't even realize he's a photographer like there's that subversion right away like, yeah. um so yeah um anything else to say about this no um it's not a movie that i would recommend to everyone in the same way that i would say you, that everyone who enjoys movies should watch the conversation right i i think you have to like if you enjoy like more not obscure but maybe less like overt storytelling than you might enjoy it. Yeah. And definitely if you like, I don't know. It's very esoteric. It is. Um, but really worth watching. One of my, well, one of my favorite movies for a long time. Yeah. And just a really, really, really good film. Yeah. I found that one. Uh, I liked it when I saw it all those years ago and I have another, a new appreciation for it, I think in terms of what it was doing at the time. Yeah. Okay. So, Moving on, number three is Verdiana, directed by Luis Pinwell. If I'm butchering that, mm. you have to tell me. Um, I am. It was close. Uh, Sylvia Pinal stars in it. Fernando Ray, uh, uh, Don Jamie, and then Francisco Robal uh, is Jorge, uh, the son. Ninety-five uh, percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critics. Ninety percent. From audience, uh, another Ebert four-star movie. You want to tell us a little bit about this? Because I, up until this point, I had not even heard of this movie um, until you put this on your list. Um, so Buñuel is Spanish director, uh, Spanish Mexican maybe. I don't know. Anyway, Spanish speaking director. Um, story is about uh, Veridiana, who's a uh, an initiate, like a nun who's about to take her vows and finds out that she has an uncle that she's only seen once in her life that wants to see her before she enters the convent. Um, so kind of against her wishes, she sort of goes there to spend time with them. Um, she like resembles his deceased wife. So he immediately falls in love with her really uncomfortable scene where he basically gets his housemaid to drug her. And then he like, is gonna rape her, but then he doesn't rape her, but then he tells her that he raped her so that she won't go back. And then she goes back anyway, so he tells her he didn't rape her, and then he kills himself. 
And then... And that's the first, like, 27 minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty early on. Um, so she doesn't enter the convent. She comes back and tries to live, like, this almost, like, Christ-like existence where she takes the bums of the town and lets them live on the property. Um, he has an illegitimate son that he, like, hasn't really ever recognized with a woman that he had a relationship with after his wife died. Who also comes to like run the property. I mean, it's like a sprawling like mansion almost basically on this like land. Um he's more of like a like a secular, like I don't know if hedonist is the right word, but he's definitely like a much more like worldly person, whereas Veridiana is like very spiritual and like pious in her ways. Um and he's like a economic and <clears throat> sexual progressive for the time period yeah he actually kind of describes himself i think at one point in the movie in in like a more like poetic way in the way you just said um but things happen um especially with the bums uh she's kind of like changed in her viewpoint and sort of almost at the by the end of the movie like a complete 180 from how she was in the beginning just in terms of like her acceptance of like more base like human needs and concerns and whatnot um definitely not like the pious you know god-fearing woman that she is like for the first portion of the movie um black and white um beautiful like amazing black and white some of like the best use of like light and shadow um especially when he films her in certain scenes where like the way that, like, her, like, white skin and, like, her clothes is just, like, whatever, counterbalanced against, like, the black that's, like, behind her. <clears throat> Some really iconic scenes, um, especially the Viridiana and, um, what's, what's the son's name? Jorge. Jorge. Um, leave at one point and the bums, like, wreck the house and that's, like, pretty iconic. There's a scene that, like, imitates the last supper with them them sitting at a table probably it seems to me from my reading it's the most famous scene out of the entire movie yeah because the way it's filmed is it's like it's like frantic action and then it's almost like frozen with them like sitting there in those poses Mm -hmm. um was considered like a pretty blasphemous movie for a long time um it's always funny to look at these movies especially from like the like the forties through the seventies that were considered blasphemous by the Catholic church. And they just seem like so tame, but I mean, I guess it's more about the, it's the idea, the intent yeah. and the subtext as opposed to like sure. the overt. Right. Um, cause there's definitely movies in that time that are like probably pretty blasphemous from like a Catholic perspective. Um, I don't know. It's, it's number one, um, Pinal is gorgeous in this movie. Like yes. one of my favorite, one of my favorite performances by like a female lead in a movie. Um, not only just in the fact that like she's like beautiful, but the way that like she conveys things with her face. Um, there's a lot of like she does a really good job of showing like indecision and suffering and like hidden like longing and stuff in the way that she like just her expressions um i never seen her in anything before i don't think i'm crazy she 
every time I looked at her, it's like it was a it was a slight. Her face was softer, but it reminded me of Chloe Savini. Yeah, I can see that. Like just like a slight, slightly less rigid like face than Chloe Savini has, but like the you eyes. Think you say her name Savini. Is that is that how you? Say I don't know. It? I thought that's how you said it. Savini is how I've always said yeah. it in my head. I don't know that I've ever heard it pronounced oh. in real life. Uh, yeah, I don't think I have either. I don't know. That's Savini. I don't know. I don't know. If you know, you should let us know. Um, <laughs> or, or I just go on the Google and yeah, find out. I ain't got that kind of time. Um, there's a... I, one of the things I love the most about Spanish, Spanish, French, and Italian films from like this time period, <clears throat> there's a very strong human element to all these movies. Like... I always feel like the people in it feel like they've lived like a life, kind of. And maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's the time period. Maybe that's just like the European, like, acting sensibility. But, you know, when you see Jorge, when you see, like, Don Jaime, you know, like, the weight that's in their eyes and the look of their clothes and the way they carry themselves, it's just very... It doesn't feel like acting. Like, it doesn't feel like you're watching a performance so much as it feels like you're just watching a person, I don't know, that's had, like, these experiences and whatever. Um, and Buñuel is, he's pretty fascinating because a lot of his stuff is very surreal. I mean, his, like, his earlier movies, and they got, like, Unshen Andalou and Lajdor and Simon of the Desert and whatever. That are incredibly, like, surreal movies. Like, they're almost, like, abstract, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, and really, like, super influential. Um, I think Veridiana is a really good balance between, like, just being a story. Like, a narrative and some, like, more... <clears throat> I don't know. More, like, abstract elements to it. Yeah. Uh, it's very symbol-heavy. Yes. Um, but you can piece it together... I think the problem I was having, because I've been thinking about this now, I watched it, I guess, earlier this week for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, I guess just briefly, like, I was pretty shocked by how suggestive it was. Yeah. Like, uh, within the first, like, ten minutes, I was, like, pretty, like, taken aback for the time period. Uh, yeah, when he's, when he's, like, starting to undress her in the bed. Oh, even before that, when she first shows up, like, I was immediately made uncomfortable because he mentions how she looks like her aunt. Oh, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. And she, and she replies, yes, you told me that before. And knowing that they only met one time. Yeah, when, when she, she was, was, like, eight or Right, when she was much younger, like that, yeah. yeah. Um, that put me on guard. And then she goes out in the morning after she's been there the first night and they're milking the cow. Yeah, the... And he's trying to get her to milk the cow. And I was like, holy shit, like... You know, it's but like, she can't do it because she's like. Sure, but the implication there of this, like, you know, farmhand trying to get her to milk this cow, you know, yeah. she um, definitely wants to milk that cow, but right. she can't bring herself to do it. Right. Um. So I, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was something, and how suggestive it was. Um, on a very subtle level, I yeah. think. Um, he he becomes a lot more... Buñuel is a lot less subtle, like, later in his career. Right. Like, um... 
Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. and um, ah shit, what is that movie called? I can't remember. So, I also was thrown off by the fact that I didn't know where this was going at any point. Yeah. Like, it was a movie that completely kept me on my toes. It's only 90 minutes. Yeah, it's pretty short. But, it, like, the first third is different from the second third, and is different from the last third. Like, it completely kept me guessing, like, the entire time what was happening here. Um, so, I'll, I'll just say, like, I've done a little bit of reading about Franco Italy mm-hmm. and, Spain. you know... Yes, Spain, and was trying to, like, figure out, like, okay, what context was this film made in? So I read a little about that, and I've been trying to put it together, and I see some of the symbols, like the cross that turns into a knife. Yeah. The, um, there's something to that incredible scene where, um, Jorge, the son, the illegitimate son, sees the wagon cart go by with the dog attached to it and um, the dog's tied to the wagon so the idea is you know the dog has to keep up or the dog will be choked out Uh if it doesn't Um, and he feels seemingly sympathy for the dog and buys the dog from the owner of the cart and then as soon as he has the dog on the leash and walks away with him he can't he doesn't see that there's another cart that goes by with another dog like tied to it I think there's something pivotal to that idea there that he he has the sympathy to help this one and it totally doesn't see the other one so, going by. So I, I okay. see these like symbols, you know, like throughout it. Um, and it's like, I don't think I can put the symbols together. Like, uh, so my question is, what am, I, what am I supposed to be taking away from this film? So this is my layman's, like, yeah. whatever. Um, I think Buñuel is chiding the idea of like these women people like going into the church and basically sacrificing their a lot of their humanity to you know like worship god or like whatever you know viridiana the reason that she doesn't go back or the reason that he hangs himself is because she thinks she's lost her virtue and she eventually does lose her virtue, but she comes like becomes more of like an actual person like throughout the course of the movie. Don Jaime is trying to take her from the life of a the convent for his own personal, you know, needs, like basically because he's an old like lech that's in love with his his niece. But the dog, you know, that you rescue, which is kind of like what Viridiana is, is she's this, like, innocent that was being dragged along into something that I honestly, like, when you look at how she, like, the Christ, like, imagery of her, like, taking care of the poor, and, you know, when she unpacks it first, she unpacks a crucifix, like, three nails, and a crown of thorns, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's, even though she's a woman, there's a lot of, like, Christ imagery in it. So she's kind of been, I don't know, like air quote rescued from the life of being in a convent, but there's immediately something else, like someone else is in the same situation as from behind. Like you can't save everybody. So I think it's more about his, maybe his feeling of like eliminating that institution altogether because you can't just like rescue like one at a time because it's going to perpetuate itself. I think there's it's also guilt based, I guess too, right? Like, the reason that she ends up taking all those homeless people in 
is because she feels guilty. Well, because she's over Don Jaime. See, I don't know that. I don't think she feels guilty about it at all. I think that she. Well, it's a, it's a dual thing. She tells the mother superior that's that she doesn't feel remorse about it whatsoever, but she's still guilty. Yeah. Well, no, she's guilty because of like the overwhelming like Christian idea that you're basically guilty of everything sure, because sure, you're yeah. a human being. Yeah. But so she tries to save the poor. But it fails. Right. I mean, they end up, like, going back to their base, like, Mm -hmm. human desires. And I think that's a big part of it, too, is that, you know, you can try to, like, push yourself to be, like, as pious and, you know, whatever. Like, removed from human, like, want as you can, but that it's still there. Like, you can't ever escape. Yeah, I have that right right down as a question is... is, is the idea the base nature of humans can't be controlled? Like, I think that sh- I mean I think that's what Buñuel is saying, and yeah. I think it's illustrated like really strongly at the end, where it's like basically overtly implied that Viridiana is going to have a menage a trois with Jorge and his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, that she's gone from being like like the most chaste and pious person, you know, at least in the context of that film, because even the mother superior when she comes in feels like she has more humanity to her than Vera Deanna does early in the movie. Like, Vera Deanna really does seem like... I mean, she's very innocent in the beginning of that movie. And at the end, like, the fact that she's just kind of given up all those ideals for something that could be considered almost like a... I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but... Like, definitely not <laughs> not a pious act. You know, which is, like, them having a threesome. Okay. Um... I don't know. I, I so so that 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 helps me some. Uh, let me ask you this: It's uh, Isabel Quigley from The Spectator in nineteen sixty two. I want to read something that she wrote. That if that really is like the idea behind this movie to some degree, um, she has a question here about that. She says that Buñuel says in his images, "Better pour concrete and saw wood than pray." She's referencing a very specific montage in the movie where there's juxtaposed with um, um, Vera Diana leading the homeless in prayer and um, Jorge um, and the people that he's hired rebuilding the farm. Uh, She says that the obvious questions, um, referencing the word better, um, the poor concrete, better for whom, better when, and what sort of prayer are left unasked. I heard someone remarking that Buñuel is like a man who can't stop swearing, only his oaths are in images, not words. Which I think is really clever. Um, Certainly much of Vera Diana has this compulsiveness, the nose-thumbing that actually weakens the anti-clerical case by involving a much wider range of feeling than the clerical. What Buñuel has really done is make what is basically a political protest in terms of religion, and where the political protest falls down is over his cynicism about people. If everyone is depraved, what is the point of worrying whether they should pour concrete or pray? So if everyone is depraved, then no one is depraved, would be my answer to that. Like, that's just Buñuel realizing that everyone has something that makes them not, like, a perfect person. I mean, Verdiana's whole, like, existence is based on, like, like the perfection of like her piety or whatever right like she's like the most pious and she's going to be like 
you know, this whatever noviate or whatever. And she has like these human emotions and these feelings and everyone has those things. And you can't like pray them out. You know, she's trying to turn the homeless into like, kind of like the perfect congregation, but she fails, right? Like, and Jorge's intent is to take this farm that, you know, Don Jaime, like, admits, like, he has not, like, again, run that well, right? Like, he just kind of, like, lived there. Yeah, he led it for 20-some yeah, years. Yeah, has let it go on, like, fallow, yeah. basically. And he's trying to, you know, through the drive of his own ambition and, like, his own, like, sweat, like, wants to make it, like, a functioning and profitable thing again. Um, there's a really interesting quote from Buñuel about this movie where someone asked him, because it was deemed as, like, blasphemous by the Catholic Church at one point, and then probably with good reason, um, where he said that I, it's something like, like, the Pope is probably a better judge of what's blasphemous than me, so if he yeah, says it's blasphemous, that, yeah. like, I guess, kind of like, we'll just go with that. Right. Um, I mean, it's, again, like, and uh, it's always hard to talk about why certain movies were controversial, like, from our modern perspective, because we've obviously had far worse things than Vera Deanna in sure. terms of, like, condemnation of the church, right? And even, like, from a modern context, you know, you're finding out all these things about the Catholic Church and, like, basically like operating, like, child pornography rings. Sure. And that's a far, like, greater condemnation just them doing it themselves. But, you know, he was living in, a like, a fascist country at the time. And the Catholic Church had so much more influence, you know, during the early part of the century. Like, I I can see why here's a guy that's saying, like, we don't have to live in the shadow of, you know, the ideals of this institution because they don't necessarily relate to the reality of being a person. And there's a lot of films. I mean, there's him, you know, Jodorowsky, um... Who else is really kind of like? Anti- well, I think I think keep saying Italy is because it's like, like Fellini does something, yeah, similar I think, but much more subtle and not a major part of the movie in what we were talking about. Um, in a Mark Ward. In a Mark Ward, yeah, yeah, because you know? because the priest is like basically the most ineffectual person, sure, in the town. I mean, the and because thing- I think, and I think it has to do with the critique of the Catholic Church in the sense of. The, the sexual repression or the sure. obsession that's going on. There. But these were countries that were, in a very real way, you know, ruled by the Catholic Church right. for right. centuries. And you you can... And it, it's the subversion of the time and the idea that, like, you don't need to stick to the old ideals. And it's actually kind of what Pauline Kael says about, about Blow Up, is that these are times where, like, the youth are sort of realizing that like the morals and social mores of their their parents or of the past don't necessarily apply to them and i mean i can see like where where buñuel is saying that and he is like a i don't know like he is based in like the reality of like living in a like a fleshy body you know what i mean like it's not about this pious devotion to what comes after it's about like the real devotion and realization that you got to still live like on this planet um and he just does it in like a much more artistic way than what i just said but 
I don't know. Um, um, the thing, I mean, ultimately in the end, I mean, the thing I, I found most surprising is that it had 95% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, not surprising. 90% from an audience Yeah. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, which I found really surprising because it's not a movie that I would look at and say, like, oh, I bet you a lot of people like that movie. Yeah, but who's seeing it, right? Like, where's that audience? Yeah, possibly, yeah, you're right. Um, it's, in my opinion, it's his most accessible film. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Discreet Charm is is as accessible, but I I enjoy this one more. Um, definitely, like, a departure from his more, like, surrealist, um, absurdist films of, like, his early career. Yeah. Um, Although there's still a lot of, I think, absurdity in this there movie. There is. If, you, if you're looking for it. But the absurdity isn't a function of itself, right? Like, yeah. the absurdity happens through the course of narrative. It's not just like... I am not a huge fan of just disconnected surrealist scenes, right? Like, I like narrative. I don't mind seeing things. Like, again, like, I... At some point, we're gonna have to, like, do a list where I can talk about Jodorowsky and actually talk about him, because I always bring him up. But to me, he's like my best example of someone that makes a movie that's less narrative and more just image. And it is like shocking and, you know, discordant like images that he shows and Buñuel can do that, but Buñuel can also tell a story. And I think this is the perfect balance of, you know, again, like that scene of them sitting there in repose of like the last supper is like incredibly powerful and well shot and such like a such a subversion of like the original right yeah but also done within the context of the story that he's telling you right so when you watch Fear of Deanna even if you have questions about what the symbolism meant in that movie you still understand from start to finish everything that happened in that movie there's there's no question about what the narrative that you saw is and I think that's I, I think it's brilliant like I think it and a lot of those, a lot of directors from that time, like, were trying to do similar things. I mean, you know, you brought up a Marquardt, I think that's a good example. But he does the same thing in La Strada, you know, Fellini. And you have um, uh, Bergman um, does, what, um, like, The Seventh Seal is very similar. Um, what's that movie called, like, Hour of the Wolf or whatever? Hour of the Wolf. Has, like, a lot of, like, the same themes um, of fucking... Winterlight or whatever mm-hmm. um, is like basically, I mean, not the same, but you know, they, a lot of these guys who were like artists and who were becoming prominent, like were realizing that they had the ability to question the validity of living your life based on like what this religious organization tells you you had to do, especially the European guys, because I think in America we're more far removed from it, but you know, the Catholic church was a very real part of everyone's life in Europe for like the better part of a millennium almost. And I think that it is like, kind of like a, almost a metamorphosis from being like, well, I mean, they're all on obviously like modernist directors in the sense that they're all very logical and rational minded. And, you know, that whole movement turned against the church. It was much more into, they're, they're all atheists or agnostics. Or See, but I don't think... Types. So I don't think the Viridiana, though, is a rejection of God. Like, to call it blasphemous, I think, is... I think it's I think it's a sacrilegious movie, but I don't think it's a blasphemous movie. And I don't think there's anything that says that God doesn't exist or that God... 
No, like I don't you can't. But I think it definitely says that the Catholic Church is not the way. Yes, not, yes. not not who you need to follow to live your life, right? And I think yeah. that that's. I think it probably was a much more powerful message at the time from that perspective. I think that's where I was. I was getting lost. Is I think I pretty much had it. I just thought there was something else that I might be missing. Yeah. Like, and again, this is just me. I mean, I'm just yeah, talking out of my yeah. ass basically because yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But you know, I I feel like it would have been much more shocking and much more like revelatory and maybe much more like offensive at the time. Whereas like, it's almost yeah. quaint. Sure. Even though you can see like the implied, whatever debauchery and some actual real debauchery in the movie, honestly, but, um, still like really well done. Like, again, fucking Pinal's performance. Like I, I love that woman in this movie and I just love the way it looks like I love the black and white. I'm a sucker for black and white anyway. So, all right, so we're going to get ready to move on to the number two movie. We're going to answer a really important question here, which is how you uh, pronounce um, uh, Chloe Savini's name. Chloe Savini. Ah. Chloe Savini. Yeah. Okay. So I was right. You win. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay, so number two, we have Carol Reed's The Third Man from 1949, starring Joseph Cobden and Orson Welles. Do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this classic? Um, so, Cotton plays Holly Martins. Um, he's a Western novelist. Like, he writes Westerns. Who's invited by his friend Harry Lyme to come to post-World War II Vienna for a job. When he gets to Vienna, he finds that Harry Lyme has, like, died, um, was hit by a car, <clears throat> but doesn't believe the police narrative of, like, what happened. <clears throat> Starts to dig further into, I guess, the events of what occurred, um, and finds out that Lyme was involved in, like, some pretty, like, bad dealings, uh, specifically with selling, I guess... I don't know if watered down is the right word, but penicillin. That's like caused like meningitis or something maybe. I can't remember what the disease is, but it's like made the kids that have taken this penicillin like get really sick. Um, Meets Lime's girlfriend. um, Finds out eventually that Lime is alive. And then starts to work with the police kind of to bring down his, uh, his friend. Um... Really, Carol Reed is one of my, I, I think maybe, I don't know if underrated is the right word, because I think Carol Reed is pretty, like, universally lauded, but... He's not discussed very yeah, much. Yeah, I, I think he's a director that's kind of, like, sort of forgotten when you talk about, like, the great directors of the first part of the 20th century. Um, but really just able to craft, like, almost perfect movies. Um, this one in particular, um, and obviously Third Man is, is a classic, um, but the pacing, the acting, the direction, the way the film is plotted, um, it's based off a novella maybe by Graham Greene, um, another... Well, Greene wrote it. Oh, and then like adapted it into a novella. Kind of, yeah. Like he, he wrote it as a, um, for himself, kind of as a precursor to... 
the movie so he could explore the character motivations and those yeah. kind of things before he sat down to write the script. One of my favorite writers of the 20th century, Graham Greene. Um, not nearly as, I don't know, like ideologically complex. Although there's definitely some, some themes that are explored, like sort of like the carpetbagger approach to post-war Europe. I mean, Vienna's split into four districts where it's the the Americans, the British, the German, French, and the Russians, maybe, or yes. like split the, the city into quadrants That's where yeah. each of them like have control over it. But definitely, you know, it's it's almost like lawless in the sense that these people have come in and are exploiting, you know, how bad of shape Vienna's in for their own personal gain. Um, which is a pretty, like, weighty topic and, you know, still relevant today. Um, but at its core is just a very well-told, like, well-crafted story with a couple of iconic performances. Um, Joseph Cotton is, like, fantastic as Holly Martins. Um, Orson Welles, you know, really iconic performance as, uh, Harry Lyme. Um, a couple of scenes that I think, to me, like, anyway like stick out as some of the most memorable scenes um of the early 20th century <clears throat> specifically the scene on the ferris wheel where the ferris lime wheel is definitely the number one yeah scene in that movie. lime and martin's like confront each other and lime basically tells martin's that he'll kill him and then kind of like softens um and then the scene in the sewers at the end uh that leads to you know like the final act of the movie um there's also a really brilliant sequence in that movie towards the end as well when they're waiting for, they think they have Harry Lyon trapped. It's, it leads into the sewer sequence, but um, it's at night and they've set up a sting and you see shadows like on the buildings as people are coming around the corner and one of them ends up being an old like bum trying to sell balloons. Yeah, And it's like just the... Just the just the shadows and the way shadows move in that movie are so incredible. Like in the wet streets, yeah. Like in how the rain shines off of them. And personally, one of my favorite uses of I don't know negative space, maybe in terms of like the juxtaposition of black and white in that movie. Mm -hmm. um, the scene that I always remember specifically, like to that point, is. The first time that Martins realizes that Lime is alive because he sees him, like, looking at him mm -hmm. from the shadows, basically. And then, like, Lime runs away. Um, but just Orson Welles, like, being, like, kind of, like, drenched in shadow, but also, like, illuminated to the, where you can... I don't know, it's just, it's so well done. The, the whole thing's so well crafted because you're told early in the film by Anna that the cat loved Harry Lyme and it's this kind of almost throwaway line almost like as if she's remembering and just romanticizing Harry and when there's somebody outside watching um Holly from one of the storefronts you know the the entranceways and you see the cat go up and start like rubbing itself against the person's yeah. legs and it's it, it, view, it clues the viewers in is like, oh my god, is that actually yeah. Harry Lime? And you still don't know as Holly's yelling out because he's a bumbling 
fool half the time and he's sure. like yelling in the street, you know, trying to get him to come out. And and then the old woman like turns on her light in her house to like her apartment to like yell at him. And like when that shaft of light crosses like Orson Welles' face and there's just that slight smirk, uh, one of the best character yeah. introductions of all time. And really well done in the sense that like you as the viewer, you don't know that Harry Lyme is alive until no, that moment. No. You actually have very... There's I, I don't think there's any clue that no. Harry Lyme is still alive until you know that he's alive. And it's, I don't believe so. It, you're, you're exactly right. Like, it is, like, a brilliant way to introduce... Like, not only introduce the character itself, and it tells you so much about Harry as, like, a confident, almost, like, detached, like, individual. Mm-hmm. But also just, like, visually the way it's done, it's um it's amazing. Um, really, like, I, I use the word taught a lot, but it really is, like, just the pacing of that movie. I don't even know how long that movie is because it never feels like it takes any time to watch I it. I want to say an hour 50. Okay. And maybe, but, like, you, even the lulls of that movie are not lulls. Like, it's always moving you from point to point to point to advance the story. Um... And Carol Reed is really talented at just, like, telling stories. Um, and this is, you know, I mean, I, I I think his best film, but one of my, one of my favorite, I mean, I guess I would call it a noir movie. Um, Some people argue against it, but I, I think it certainly is a film noir. Yeah, I mean, it has all, like, the hallmarks of film noir. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you don't have the cocksure, confident, well, he's cynical, I guess, but you don't have that detective in that role, but I think that's partially a little bit of the send-up of the genre at that point, is that instead you kind of have this, because it takes place in Vienna, you have this, like I said before, bumbling uh, writer of westerns who's a romantic at heart. And kind of is an ugly American stereotype. And um, so he doesn't fit the model of the noir hero. Although by the end, he does more. Like by the time he decides that he... Once he finds the reason he should turn on his friend and help the police, he becomes more that character. And he becomes a little bit hardened by the end of that. But then becomes, like, exactly what... Because he obviously has, like, romantic feelings towards the girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, the opposite of what she wants. Like, she yes. has no interest in him at that point. I mean, that's the really only discussion point. Because, again, <clears throat> this movie just plays... It's just a thriller. Yeah. I mean, it just, uh, it's just... It's a mystery thriller. And the only discussion point, really, about it, like, conceptually, is that he still maintains his romantic nature at the end of that movie because as they're attending Harry's second funeral... His real funeral. His real funeral. um, Which is a perfect bookend for that movie. You know, those two funerals for the same person. Um, When he has Calloway stop the car so he can get out and wait for Anna as she's walking and... She's walking towards the camera, towards the foreground, yep. and Holly sits there and lights that cigarette and just puts one leg up and is just waiting. And 
I don't know if you know this, originally it was a big debate. Graham Greene did not like that ending. And he wanted to end like his novella, novella did where they ended up going, she ended up slipping her arm, uh, her, her arm through his um, because he went along and walked, walked beside her and she slips her arm in and that's how it ends. Um, confirming like, and giving him this reward yeah. um, for his romantic nature. Uh, but the, the ending of the film to me is probably the truer ending is that she's always going to be in love with Harry Long. Oh, yeah. And she just, like, walks back. And then she just... And it's it's one of the most <clears throat> unfulfilling endings to some degree, but it's fulfilling still at the same time because it's the truth. Yeah. But he, the hero does not get what he wants, and he has to just sit there like a fool smoking that cigarette as she walks by and doesn't even glance at him. Um, yeah. And, you know, so the... It really is like the end of romance in a lot of ways. Yeah, because Harry Lyme is is a bad person and yes. one one of the best villains, I think. Oh yeah. Um, at least from like the first, like in terms of what I consider to be like older movies, like not like more modern movies, like up there with um, like Robert Mitchum and Night of the Hunter in terms mm-hmm. of just like iconic, you know, film villain like portrayals. Yeah. Um. And Wells, you know, such a, like, such a sad, like, story with Orson Wells over the course of his life for being, like, so talented, but for being such a great director, really, like, a fantastic actor as well. Sure. I mean, his, his <clears throat> role in this, which is, which is, I mean, it's, I don't know how long it's worth talking about because it's, it's the one thing people talk about the most probably is Wells' performance. And Wells himself discounted his performance in this to some degree. Um, was dismissive of it because he's, and I can't remember what play he would always cite, but he would say that, um, when you talk about a character for the first two acts, you know, when they show up in the third act, no matter what they do, they can walk across the stage and it's going to be the most brilliant performance you ever seen yeah. in your entire life. Which makes sense. Um, sure. And so he, he was very dismissive of like his role was like, of course they like me because I've been talked about the whole movie. But it's but, interesting because when, when you look at his performance, he really is a seedy version of um, <clears throat> Charles Foster Kane. Like where Charles yeah. Foster Kane is a self-made man that becomes like super wealthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harry Lyme is essentially the same thing. He's mm-hmm. a self-made man that's gained some measure of success. But whereas Foster Kane did it through like reputable means, you know, Harry Lyme does it through disreputable means. And... The performance is very similar in the way they carry themselves and the way they address other people, mm-hmm. but so different just because of the perspective of where they're coming from, you know. Well, he has that, Harry Lyme has the charm of the young Kane. Yeah, 100%. You know, he can, he can make, he can make the, the implication of murdering someone seem charming. Yeah. And that's where the danger lies in the character. So it's this really charismatic performance, charismatic character who underneath of it all is a war profiteer who, um, you know, has obviously murdered countless people by this point, is threatening to murder his friend. Yeah. And, you know, the implication is um, Holly at one point in a very brilliant, very subtle thing where... Uh, Lime looks out the door, opens the door up, and kind of, like, looks out of the Ferris wheel, like, um, uh, box, and 
looks out and uh, doesn't close the door right away. And Holly sits there and just slowly like wraps his hand around yeah. the bar to hold on just a little bit tighter because he's because he's he's he knows it's dangerous. Like he's not sure what's going to happen, but he knows that he's possibly in danger. And at that point too, he still has some. I think throughout the entire movie, but specifically there, he still has some semblance of loyalty and friendship with Harry Lyme. Yes. Like, he's not... And I believe that Harry does with Oh, yeah. I I think Harry, throughout the course of the movie, does more so with Holly. Yeah. I think Holly loses that feeling of fraternity a lot more than Harry ever does. Right. Because Harry's just, like, understands it's just circumstance, whereas Holly... Like, doesn't see it that way. Like, Holly looks at it more as, like, this guy's made choices, and it's in Harry's mind. You know, he's just was doing what he did. And... Yeah. I mean, right before the famous cuckoo clock speech, um, he says to him, Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. There's nobody in Vienna, left in Vienna, I can really trust, and we've always done everything together. Like, I believe that since, I believe that's all sincere. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, I think that he really is just seeing it as, here's my old friend and I want to cut him in on a business opportunity. But it also speaks to his level of villainy because, on you know, on one hand, he's willing to, like, take this guy in and, you know, like, help him become successful and whatever. And on the other hand, he's willing to kill him. Right. So, again, to, to you know, to Harry, it's just a business transaction. Sure. Well, and you have to think of his perspective in that Ferris wheel scene again where pretty much all of his character motivations laid out. He looks down at the people on the ground and talks about how they look like ants from that perspective. And, like, if one of them stopped moving, would you care? Um, and that's how he views all yeah. of it. Is he is, I think you said, detached. Like, he's removed and detached from humanity itself. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think he cares about Anna, and I think he cares about Holly. He I does. He cares about both of those people. 100%. But also willing to sacrifice their lives and happiness right. for his own gain or his own, like, you know, whatever... Like, continued existence. Sure. And he also sees, like, you know, the, the cuckoo spot, clock speech was the most famous lines probably from the from the movie. Um, what was it here? Um, you know, you know what the old, you know what the fellow said in Italy for 30 years under the, um, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. They produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci in the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what they produced, the cuckoo clock. Uh, which he says he got from, like, an old Hungarian play. Like, Wells, that's the only thing that Wells actually wrote in the movie yeah. was, like, it was kind of ad-lib, like, he decided to do it the day of the shoot. Um, because he, they really, all they needed was they needed 10 seconds more on the scene for some reason, and he decided to do that. So, but that perspective of even history or time from Harry Limes, you know, is that, this is just always in flux, you know, sure. there's going to, there's going to be peace and there's going to be war and war. There's more opportunity where peace, there's not. Sure. And it's like from that perspective, you know, which is sociopathic probably in nature, but from that perspective, <clears throat> um, yeah, not, even the people he cares about don't matter. But from a historical context, you look at it that this part of Europe, Europe specifically, but the world in general has just come out of, easily the most, like, recordably horrific time period in history, right? Like, with, you know, the end of World War II. And maybe that is, like, 
for as vile of a perspective it is, maybe in that circumstance it's, like, at least understandable. Oh. You know, like, you've just seen humanity murder itself for years, Mm -hmm. including, like, the extermination, or the attempted extermination of an entire, like, religious group. And he feels, you know, like, I, I can see how someone from almost like a pragmatic point of view could feel like, well, what I'm doing is not that bad. I'm just trying to get by. Sure. Doesn't make him any less of like a, right. a, a monster, right. but it makes him a little more, not sympathetic, but at least like understandable. Right. From which, his which all great villains need to be. Sure. To yeah. some degree. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, one of the other things, um, about this movie, uh, well, there's the the Zither score that you referenced earlier, talking about it being one of the best-selling uh, yeah, albums. Yeah, Hans Zimmer, yeah. Yeah, and um, one of the most perfect scores to go to a movie ever in terms of capturing the mood and the tone of that movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's, just, it's just discordant enough at times to make you unsure which I think fits perfectly, like, throughout that movie, um, and especially in that end sequence. The other thing that, uh, and this is a criticism sometimes of Carol Reed um, in the movie, is his reliance on Dutch angles. Yeah. Um, and I've always felt that it's the best use of, maybe excessive possibly, but excessive use of Dutch angles that I've ever seen. Because Brian De Palma, uses Dutch angles way too much. Yes. And they feel forced constantly when he uses them. Um, and I don't feel they're ever forced here. They feel they feel natural yeah, to, no, that's true. to the city. It also, it, you're right. And it, it, it fits the war, like the post-war destruction that you see in Vienna. But it also yeah, fits... The building, it's right. The buildings are lopsided in yeah. some ways, you know? So, yeah. It also fits just kind of the discordant nature of, like, the story where you are kept on your toes the entire time to learn, like, you know, the full, like, truth about what's happened here. You know, including, like, a character resurrecting from the dead that you think is dead sure. for, what, like, like 50 minutes into the movie right. before you find that out? 45 minutes? And the character the two people really do truly have sure. great love for... And is a monster. But that other people that they talk to, like the, what is it, it's a bellhop or whatever that Mm -hmm. witnessed it, are obviously scared of and continue to remain scared of even after he supposedly has died. Right. Um, I I don't know, like, Dutch angles only bother me when they're not used well and otherwise, like, I kind of just can accept them. Like, I I would never have that criticism of this movie. And even, even Carol Reed's friends, supposedly, like... A couple of them like wrote him and um, kind of criticizes excessive use of, of Dutch angles in in the, in the, in the movie. Um, I like some Brian De Palma stuff, but Brian De Palma is not Carol Reed, and he's Brian De Palma to me is like the poor man's like every great director of the nineteen seventies and eighties. Like De Palma is just like a step below. Like all those, guys. I think De Palma always wanted to be Hitchcock, and he's like a C level Hitchcock. Yeah, he, he can rise to like B level Hitchcock sometimes. B minus, man. Mm. I I think Blowout's a fantastic movie. I do too. Yeah. Um. I I, I like Blowout. Yeah. Okay. And Blowout's like the closest thing I think he ever did to like truly emulating like Hitchcock. 
even though he was also emulating, you know, Antonioni and emulating um, mm-hmm. Coppola in a lot of ways, right. but yeah, more than well, he had a lot of source material to draw it's from true. To, to copy off of. Um, but yeah, I, Third Man. I mean, just in all honesty, I mean, I've always when people ask me like my favorite movie, my it's an impossible thing to answer. I sure. think to some degree, but like when people like press me on it usually I end up saying the third man. Yeah. Like, uh, and I know we differ a little bit on that, but I like, if, I mean, honestly, it, would, it would be, it's in my top three or five, no matter what, like depending on how I feel, um, any given day, but it's, it's, it's definitely up there. And it's probably the one I reference the most is probably being my favorite movie. That is true. Um, <clears throat> I don't really have a whole lot. I, the third man is a movie you just have to watch. I, I think it's one of the, one of the essential movies that I think everyone should see. Yeah. Um, From a crowd, I mean, it, it, the thing is, like, Carol Reed, like, you know, some people, like, always, like, try to say that they think Wells Ghost directed this movie. And I think he took a lot from Kane and Lady of Shanghai and those kinds yeah. of things. Like, I think he was influenced by Wells. But Wells didn't touch this movie. This was all Carol Reed. And... Um, I um, I mean, he made Fallen Idol the year before, I think. Right, and Fallen Idol is yeah. just as well crafted sure. and well filmed of a, a yeah. movie. It's like this is just an excellently crafted movie in pretty much every way possible that you can think of, like down from the score to the screenplay to yeah. the pacing, exactly. to the acting to. You know, the cinematography to the lighting, like every element of this is something to, uh, has something commendable about it. And a perfect storm in a lot of ways, because it is like some of the greatest talents of that time period Mm -hmm. in Wells and Reed and Zimmer and Green, even Joseph Cotton, who, however you feel about him. This is Joseph Cotton's best performance that he ever gave. Yeah, I, I think that might be right. I mean, he. I like him in Kane a lot, but this is to me. This is his. This is his number one performance. I mean, I guess I could argue the only one other one I could think of, but I still think he's better in this. Um, what's the Hitchcock movie from the late '30s, early '40s that he's in? He plays Uncle Charlie. Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah. Um, he's really good in Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah, he's pretty. That, uh, that that's a really good performance. I I, I think. I like him as this um, fool to some degree who like learns to stop being so romantic and so trusting and grows up a little bit even though he's probably in his 40s or so. Like, yeah, but um, I mean I, he's lived his whole life crafting like fantasy basically. I mean yeah, that's what he does. Yeah. He's not a criminal. He's not a businessman. He's Well, a, Westerns by their nature are romantic. Yeah. I mean like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I like that character arc like the way he does that I really like more. him in Shadow of a Doubt a lot yeah that is uh, a really that, good I've, movie. I, I've just thought of that when I was saying it but I don't know it's debatable I think I might still I still like this performance better yeah. overall I mean he's, he's it's very comedic too I mean that's that's the thing about this movie too is it's like despite being a thriller like there's a lot of comedy there it. is um, that, that's, that I appreciate a lot I think a lot of the best thrillers though have elements of you know like it can't just all be pathos, sure. right? Like there's got to sure. be some, yeah. some humor in it somewhere. So, yeah, um, another great movie though. Ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, ninety three from audiences. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Yeah, 
So, moving on to number one. Number one, you have uh, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction from 1994, starring John Travolta. Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Bruce Willis, Tim Roth, Thing Reigns, and I'll stop there because you mm. can keep going in terms of the names in this Poor movie. Harvey Keitel. Harvey, yes, okay, Harvey Keitel. Um, Amanda Plummer, mm. Eric Stoltz, I mean... Tim Roth. I said Tim Roth. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Say him again. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean... I would assume most people know about this movie, but if you wanted to go ahead and give kind of a brief explanation of it. I mean, what is there to, like, it's, the entire length of this podcast could basically be describing what happens in Pulp Fiction, but it's a, man, it's a, a broken time narrative film that basically follows a few days in the life of a bunch of deplorable people I guess and I think it only takes place over a few days some of them sure some of them I don't think all of them Uh, tell me who's not I mean okay so um Butch's girlfriend is fine I can't remember her name in the movie yeah Fabian um I mean who's who's a good character in that movie Jules eventually becomes like on the path to being a good But I mean man. I think I think to call him deplorable when you have already earlier like talked about characters that are just trying to live their lives. Um I think there's a lot of these characters that are just trying to live their lives and they do bad things. See, I just I I kind of disagree with that because and I think it's it's Harvey Keitel that says it in the, you know, when they've jumped the car in the junkyard mm-hmm. where he says, you know, what is it? You can, you have character. You don't want to be a character. Yeah. Right. Just and because you are a character doesn't mean you, you have, have character. character. Yeah. yeah. And that's what it is. Is like all those people are are characters. I mean, they're Tarantino. One of his greatest strengths, and to me, one of his biggest flaws, is that he's always paying homage to something. Sure. Like every character in one of his movies is in some way either a direct callback because of the actor that he employs to play that character to a previous role, or it's him paying homage to another character from something that he loved in the past. And, I mean, Vince Vega is a hitman and a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. Uma Thurman is a cocaine abuser and a potential adulteress. Eric Stoltz is a heroin dealer. Amanda Plummer is the girlfriend of a heroin dealer. Uh, Jules is a assassin. Um... The three guys, I can't remember the actors' names, um, but where, is it Marvin that gets shot in the head? Marvin gets shot in the head, yeah. They're thieves, right? Um, Marcellus Wallace is a crime lord. Uh, Zed and the Gimp and the other guy are rapists. Maynard are rapists and kidnappers and probably worse. Um, Butch is a thief. And has committed manslaughter, mm-hmm. even though it's like through whatever, like his his job. I mean, my Tim Roth, and um, that's Amanda Plummer. It's uh, a Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth are the yeah. the Honey Bunny, and Honey Bunny, Pumpkin. yeah, the thieves. Yeah. Um, when I was when I said Eric Eric Stoltz, his um, Arquette is his girlfriend. Arquette. Yeah. So I think you know. 
um, Winston Wolf, Harvey Keitel's character, is a person that fixes murder scenes mm-hmm. for a crime lord. Yeah. So even Tarantino's character, um, uh, what's his name in the movie? It was just an odd adjective for you to use when I know that you have more sympathy for people in the world sometimes than than to just kind of. I do, but I don't. Adjective. I don't necessarily know that anyone. I think they're painted in, like, through the narrative of the movie. And it is a fractured narrative because it jumps back and forth in time, including seeing scenes with, you know, Vincent Vega after he's been killed on screen, mm-hmm. like, still alive and doing yeah, things because sure. they take place before. Right. Um, oh, and oh, so Butch is, like a, like, a literal murderer because he guns down Vincent Vega in his toilet. Well, that's... I mean, you could argue that to some degree that was self-defense. It doesn't mean he didn't do it. Um, I'd like to see somebody... Okay, whatever. Come and try to shoot you and see what happens. I would die. (laughs) And I would probably be the one on the toilet. Um, (laughs) Like, none of them really have a whole lot of redeeming qualities, except for Fabian, who's Hmm. generally just, like, in love with a man. Um, maybe, uh, Via Lobos, mm-hmm. because she only is just driving a taxi. Right. But everybody else is, is, is a pretty, They're Jimmy, tra- right? Jimmy's Tarantino's character. Jimmy's name. Tarantino's character, yeah. So even though, like, he's just a guy trying to help him out, how does and he... he's an asshole. Yeah, he's a, like, sort of racist, and, or right. at least, like, using he's, he's, racially insensitive language. Yes, in order to approach. Only concerned about, like, his wife not seeing the linen getting ruined, not about the dead body that's in a car in his garage. Sure. He doesn't care that the body's dead. He cares that he has to give up sheets or towels or whatever to clean it up. I mean, obviously, in this this story, it's like, people are cast as heroes at different different times. Like, you know, or protagonists, I'll say, in different stories. Like, Butch is the protagonist of the middle part of that movie. He is. And ends Um, up performing a heroic act. Right. Yeah. I mean, in order to try to... Save himself. Yes. Um, Although, ostensibly... he could have been scot-free by letting them probably murder Marcellus. Except that he wouldn't have been because he still would have... Vincent Vega was still sitting in his toilet reading Modesty Blaze, ready to, like, kill him. Yeah, but he knew at that point that that was over with. True, but Vincent Vega didn't know. No, but he killed him in Vegas. So at that point, he could have let Marcellus die. Yeah. And he probably would have been scot-free. He didn't have to go back and save him. Like, you know. That's true. Um, so it's like. This is getting really far off. <laughs> like, but I mean, I think the fact that we can have this conversation yeah. that spans like whatever, five minutes, like speaks to the amount that you can talk about this movie and how like influential and important it is. Mm-hmm. Right. But, and listen, like, I, I do think these are like, I love a lot of the characters in this movie, and I think there's some, <clears throat> like, we use the word iconic a lot, and I, I hate, like, having, like, limiting my vocabulary, but there really are some some seminal performances in this movie that have transcended. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson's entire career, you know, for the past 20, what is it now, 24 years, almost 25 years, is predicated on, like, him being Jules in yes. Pulp Fiction. Absolutely. Um... John Travolta, even, who was, like, like a has-been at that point. And I don't know if Samuel will ever match this performance ever again. 
like in terms of like no I, I like what would even come close right uh, I, I'm I, glad they're dead and I hope they're burning hell right yeah right like that was the next sure. like I Samuel mean, Jackson he kind of became a mockery of himself uh, in, in recent years to some degree at least he leans into that which I he does he, well because he understands like yeah. why people want to see him sure um, because he's going to say motherfucker and Travolta I would argue maybe Chili Palmer the year after or two years really after, good performance yeah. it, but after that like you know Travolta never hits you know, this high again so he doesn't but like another Travolta performance that I it's ridiculous but I find it a little underrated is his performance in Face Off where he's playing I don't want to Nicholas Cage's ridiculous, yeah, I, yeah. like, like an incredibly, I don't know. Like, I hate, I hate that movie. So yeah, much. I, I really like and Face I think Off. You know, a lot. I hate that movie too. Yeah, I know. Um, but Travolta. So again, to my point, was a has been until Tarantino resurrects him, and that's one of Tarantino's things is resurrecting sure. basically the dead careers of like seventies celebrities, right? And making them, Christ, you know, Ro- look at Robert, Robert Forrester. Forrester. Exactly. I mean, like you know. I, having a lengthy <clears throat> career now after Pam Greer um and he but they like went on from this to have you know some measure of success like all of them yeah um it basically spawns an entire genre of film i i think it's hard to i i think it's impossible to overstate the importance of pulp fiction and i think that it's also Difficult to talk about it in the the 20-some years since it's come out. Just because I think so much has been said about it. But... It's the most important movie of the past 25 years since it's come come out, pretty much. When when I saw Pulp Fiction, and I skipped school to see Pulp Fiction the day that it came out. um, Most of my life was spent watching movies from 1980 and prior. And a lot of them were like 1970 and prior. At that point, because um, this is really when I was like really getting into watching classic like art house cinema or whatever foreign film. Pulp Fiction made it possible to I think be excited about modern movies again. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just I mean I remember like the the preceding years of Pulp Fiction, the things I really remember seeing is shit like like Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah. and Stargate. And just, just movies that are, they're fine, but they're just movies, right? Mm-hmm. But Pulp Fiction made it exciting to see movies again. Because after that, you get, you get train spotting, you get, um, the professional, um, usual suspects. I mean, there's all it, kinds it, of... It sparks a return to crime movies. Yeah. Like... Be coming back into the forefront again. But crime movies that aren't vehicles for, like, Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone. Are you thinking about that Assassin's movie? Yeah, I know that's after it. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, It it inspires a lot of really bad crime movies, don't get me wrong. But it brings crime back, you know, because it's like Two Days in the Valley and all that kind of shit. But it's like, it brings crime back into the forefront again after somewhat of an absence. I mean, there were a couple things leading up to this, like lifters and... You know, those type of movies. Oh, but it's a good movie. It is, yeah, it's a really good movie. But it's like, there, there was stuff, but like, this is the thing that really like, just sparks crime coming back. It also sparks a resurgence in dark comedy. Um. Yeah. I would especially say postmodernist dark comedy. Um, but, but it also to me is like, like the, like the, the crown jewel of postmodern film. 
like is and it's why it's the most important film to me like the past 25 years is that Tarantino just like changes like the entire game of like what sure. you are expecting in movies at that point some slight fourth wall breaking mm-hmm. um the ability to have snappy pop culture heavy dialogue sure be like the driving yes. force behind your movie where yes it's just as much about how something's said and what is said as you know is just as important as like what's occurring on the sure. screen. Sure. So you look at like you know like a, like a lot of modernist movies. It's like you know like the Third Man. Or go back to that. Just as we just talked about, it, is propelled by the plot is propelled by the dialogue. Yes. And it's like so the dialogue is meaningful. That's the thing. Like that and the screen and the images are what you're using to put together the piece of the pod and put it together. And it's like the dialogue. In Pulp Fiction, which is like this postmodernist, you know, element, is meaningless a lot of times. Sometimes, yeah. Like some of it's propelling the plot forward, but other times it's just like they're, you know, it's 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 the things that are iconic I, now. They use that word is like them in the car talking in the beginning of that movie so, about uh, the difference between McDonald's in Paris and McDonald's here. I think that I don't think meaningless is the right way to phrase it. I think that. Not immediately, or not apparently meaningful, is the way to say it. I think that I, I think that interaction between Jules and, and Vincent, where they're talking about the Royale with cheese, you know, as they're driving to commit murder. Sure, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm using the post-artist language to say meaningless. It's like Seinfeld is a show without meaning, yeah. right? But it, of it's a show about it has, nothing. show about nothing, but of course it has meaning to it. But like it's, it's not about nothing. It's, it's not so... For being like so such stylized dialogue, it's also very naturalistic the way that they talk. Like even though people, I mean, I I think that people do talk like that, but not in like such a directed way. Sure. Um, but they're having like these conversations that like you might have with your friends mm-hmm. because they build them as being like two guys that like are legitimately fond of each other. Right. And then they go in and they, you know, they kick down the door and they have their guns out. And that's your movie right there. And it's, right. I don't know, it's a, I, I'm not a huge fan of the term postmodernism. Although I completely understand like what you're saying and you're exactly right. But it really just, it was the first movie that showed that independent film. And it made Miramax, you know, Miramax like made their for as awful as, like, the wine, like, Harvey Weinstein is, like, it really made Miramax, like, the premier studio for years oh, at that sure, point. sure. And it showed that independent film was not only that's, important... That's an element I didn't even think of, is that... <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's... <clears throat> that I, movie, this movie leads to, well, you know, Weinstein. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, th- this movie is what made them, yeah. like, the studio. Right. It, it showed that independent film didn't have to just be like small things that were award fodder that it could be culturally relevant and it could be commercially successful. And I think that's why like so many great movies are made after Pulp Fiction. And even if you can't trace them directly in terms of their style or whatever to this movie, they definitely have lineage in terms of just their ability to get made. Right. Like, does train spotting exist without Pulp Fiction? No, it doesn't. You know, does the usual suspects get made without Pulp Fiction? Maybe. I, mean, I would even go like 10 years in the future, or maybe not, I don't think it's quite 10 years, but it's like, does Memento get made without Pulp oh, Fiction? Oh, sure. Like, yeah, I mean, that's like, like five oh, years, I think. But. Yeah. 
it's like 99, 2000, I guess. But it's like, I, but it's like, I would say a lot of those things don't get made without Pulp Fiction. And again, oh, sorry. Again, to speak to the importance of this movie is that we're talking about these things and we really haven't even talked about the movie. Right. Like, we haven't really talked about so many scenes in this movie that you just... it. I don't know if there's anyone who would listen to this that hasn't seen Pulp Fiction. And I would imagine that most people that would have interest in listening to a podcast about movies has seen this movie. Right. But what I would ask, like, when you're listening is to think about the first time you saw this movie. And how you felt going into it for whatever reason you wanted to see it. And how you felt after. I mean, for us, it was... I liked Reservoir Dogs a lot. I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs yet. So I, it was one of my 5 for 5 for 5 choices movies. Yeah. And I had seen it like maybe 3 or 4 months before this came out. And I had read... We used to read... um, uh, What was the name of that magazine? Sight and Sound maybe. I, one of those like... Yeah. When magazines were a thing that you actually like, bought and read. Right. Instead of just looking on the internet. Um, they had talked about the filming of this movie and there was some anticipation for it. Um, but very little expectation going in. Except that it was something I wanted to see because I like Reservoir Dogs. And I honestly felt like transformed coming out of that theater. And not to whatever like romanticize it. But I can remember specifically like walking out of that movie theater into the sunlight. Because again we had skipped school to go see it. Or no, I'm sorry. We all got our parents to write us notes to leave school early mm-hmm. to go catch the first show at the movie theater. And just, like, going out and buying another ticket and going back in. Yeah. Like, we 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 left the theater, I don't know, like, 4 o'clock-ish, something like that. Bought tickets to the 7 o'clock show, went and got dinner, came back, and watched Pulp Fiction yeah. again. And there's very few movies where... I've watched them multiple times in the theater because I loved them so much. But I think I saw Pulp Fiction. Was that in Glasgow? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we were saw probably it at, the same theater. Though. We saw it at People's Plaza. Um, because when I saw it, I knew of its existence because I started watching. That's like a year after I had my surgery, where I really started watching like all kinds of old film, and I started reading Entertainment Weekly at that yeah. point. And I saw like the fall preview. And I knew that this movie existed in Bledsoe and I, but we didn't know anything about it really besides like the little blurb and everything weekly and the poster. And we really thought it was just going to be like kind of like an old school gangster movie. So we were going to the movies pretty much, I would say, weekly, every other week probably. Um, And we were 14 years old. So like, you know, our parents are dropping us off, you know, and, um, and we went to go see it and... I remember, and I, like, not knowing, I remember enjoying it, and I didn't know what the hell to think, and it's really the Marvin scene where they shoot him in the face, um, where it's like, that's the one I remember from that night more than anything, is just laughing hysterically, and never really seeing that type of dark humor anywhere before. And that, that's another thing, too, and it's 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 funny that you mentioned that, because I remember we were, there was nobody, maybe like two or three other people in the theater when we saw it at the early show. Oh, okay, the, yeah. The first show of the day. Yeah, the 7 o'clock show. The was, 7 o'clock show was, like, close to sold out, yeah, if not sold yeah, out. Uh-huh. And this is, like, this is pre-stadium seating days, so yeah. you're in this, like, box, basically, 
this concrete box that's on a slope with these uncomfortable chairs and just the reactions of that crowd to that scene to the so many scenes in that movie like that that scene specifically i remember being like a huge reaction and the um bruce willis going through the different implements of destruction yeah in um uh-huh. zed's pawn shop before yeah. he like selects the katana oh, to go right. back yeah. um got a huge reaction but in a lot of ways, it felt like the first movie, and I was 94, so I was like 17 when I saw this movie. It felt like the first movie that was like like mine, like for our generation. Mm-hmm. That it really just kind of was something that I didn't feel that my parents would necessarily appreciate or understand. Because yeah. we would watch stuff like, and I grew up watching movies with my parents and they never watched horror movies with me or stuff, but you know, Goonies and the Indiana Jones movies and Star Wars and Flight of the Navigator and the right. Explorers, like all these things, even like Buckaroo Banzai and stuff, and um, we would watch them together, like my parents and I. And this was one of the first movies where I had been driving, but you know, like previously, like one of the first times where like we just went to see a movie like by ourselves and with no parents with us and. It just felt, like, really special. Like, it, it definitely, beyond the fact that it honestly is, like, a really well-crafted, brilliant movie. Like, I don't think the Tarantino... I I enjoy Kill Bill more, both those movies, than I enjoy Pulp Fiction now. Mm-hmm. Like, as a narrative. Um, I think that, I think Kill Bill, to me personally, is his masterpiece. But I don't know that he ever rose to the level of just, like, daring and inventiveness and like that that movie makes him an an auteur if you want to use that term yes i agree because it's like you look at the tension that he builds in the diner sequence yeah and like that's hitchcock level oh yeah like it's it's a master absolutely brilliant like you know i mean the, the the filmmaking and the editing of that scene is absolutely brilliant I I would put it up right up there with some of the top filmmakers that do thrillers, like you know. And another thing too is that not only from like a like just a pure aesthetic perspective of him as a filmmaker, but of him as the writer of that movie, the what is it Leviticus, right? Like twenty five something mm-hmm. is yeah. what Jules is quoting. That Ezekiel. dialogue Ezekiel. Ezekiel. That dialogue is some of the most perfect, you know, I'm trying to be the righteous man and the bad motherfucker wallet. Like it's, it's tense and it's weighty and it's got like sociological and even spiritual import. And then it's hilarious because, you know, I want you to find the wallet that says bad motherfucker. And it's like, oh, well, you know, he's just like, like he's Uh whatever. And then he pulls it out and there it is. And, like, you immediately, you go from being, like, super tense and unsure of right. how it's going to play out. Because you think that, pun, uh, honey, which one is Tim Rothley, Honey Bunny, or Pumpkin? Pumpkin. He's, he's pumpkin. Yes. You, you think he's going to get shot in the face. Right. And then he doesn't. And then you laugh. Like, it's, right, yeah. it's such a, yeah. such a, I don't know, like a roller coaster almost. To yeah, yeah. Uh, a right. And I mean, cliche. And, like, and, like, and he, he's not afraid to take... He's not afraid of silence. He's not afraid to take breaks, like, in that scene, like, you know, three, four, five, six seconds, you know, of silence. 
I mean, it just he just lets that tension build all the way up to that speech of Jules explaining how he's interpreting Ezekiel for himself now. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm trying to think what he says. He says that, um, you know, the truth is that he's, um, something I can't remember, like the violence that men do or whatever, yeah. like the evil that men do. That he realizes. You know, but, but, he, but he wants to be the shepherd. Try, trying to be the shepherd. Right, I'm trying to be a shepherd. Um, oh my God, so good. And, it is. And, it's and something... there's the ridiculous aspect of the clothing they're wearing because of oh, yeah. having to change out of their suits. Like, you know, I mean... It's 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 so absurd, like you know, and it's like there's this act of kindness that he like lets these he could just kill these two, and nothing would happen, and it's like which is what which is what Vincent wants him to do. Vincent right. wants oh, him yeah. to murder yeah mm-hmm. <clears throat> these people right, which in some ways is like you know the the morality play aspect of this why Vincent has yeah. to die. And uh, honestly, in like any other crime movie, if this was a sequence, that's what would have occurred. Sure, it would have been an action sequence where. Vincent and Jules basically turn into gunslingers right. and take down these two criminals. Sure. And to subvert that by making it solved by dialogue, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And Tarantino never shies away from showing violence. No, like, no. Ever. Yeah. Um, maybe one of the best, like, artistic directors of violence next to John Weaver, Sam Peckinpah, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, I don't know. It's, it's eminently watchable. It never loses any of its impact I don't think yeah. and again like I would ask that anyone who's seen it I think you should watch it again if it's been a while um, yeah. my son is 17 we watched this for the first time like a year ago and he was pretty blown away by it I'm um, pretty much the same age that I was when I saw it but definitely like a genre defining film and maybe maybe one of the five best films of you know the the twentieth century. I think, at least in terms of its cultural importance and its yeah. importance to film in general. No, like I said, I think in the past twenty five years, the most important movie that's been made. Like, and one since of the, it's, since it was filmed is the most important. one of the most ridiculous Oscar snubs of all time, in terms of like not winning. I right. I mean, it's I I understand Tom Hanks that year winning Best Actor, obviously for Forrest Gump. Um, no problem with that whatsoever, but. Um, this definitely should have been one best picture probably and best director. Um, yeah. And I think it was only adapted screenplay, right? Or, I mean, original screenplay. You I believe right? so, yeah. yeah. Um, maybe something like sound editing or something like that. I don't know. Too. I can't remember. I don't pay but, attention to those categories. Um, but, yeah, it didn't win any of the major awards. Even Samuel, I think, um, what was it? Bella Gossi, um Oh, Martin Landau? Martin Landau won that year for Best Supporting I mean, that's... That's a really good performance. You can't argue against that performance. It's a fantastic performance. That's a great movie, too. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. um, I mean, the the, the criticisms of this movie, I mean, it has 94% around Tomatoes from critics, 96 from the audience. Um, You know, some of the things we've talked about in other podcasts before, where it's like um, uh, Kenneth Dern of the LA Times... um, kind of sees it like a lot of like the violence being played for shock value as opposed to um but i think it's the uncomfortableness with violence yeah uh, and um, specifically the rape scene he thinks was there for shock value <clears throat> i mean that's 100 percent correct but it's not shock value in the sense of titillating you it's shock value of making what comes next 
matter that much more. So that when Marcel, you're talking about when Marcellus Wallace yeah, was raped. raped. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't. Remember. He was like, I don't think there's any of the rape scene. Yeah, this is the only Um, it actually lends weight to why he would forgive Butch, mm-hmm. even though he's wanted to kill Butch. That you've seen like over the course of the entire movie. Yeah, uh, Stanley Kaufman. This last one, I'll, I'll tell you, is Stanley Kaufman of the movie Republic um, found the success of the movie disturbing at the time in '94, and he accuses accuses the movie of um, cultural slumming. And he says so much of what inundates us these days in film and various kinds of pop music is calculated grunginess of climate and temper. So much of what goes on in what I hear of rock music revels in the lower end of every kind of spectrum. Grungy ideas and diction delivered by grungy people. Mm. So, so much of modern film seems to compete in grunginess. He's really liking this word. Um, well, it was very, a popular word at the time. Very little of this stuff seems to have anything to do with the lives actually lived by its avid public. Most of it seems designed as guided tours of an underworld for people otherwise placed, career-oriented students, job-holding others. Escapism always has been one function of theater and film, and for ages it was cloyingly pretty pretty. Boy, has the pendulum swung. I just criticize the use of the word grungy because I think it's the only word that he heard during that time that he seems to... You know, it's, it's an interesting on. perspective, and in a lot of ways I think it kind of validate something I said earlier is that that's the perspective of someone it's that feeling of honestly being part of like a counterculture that you get right. the first time you see it especially if you were able to see it in its original the release is the parents that can't understand yeah that yeah. like it's not for you man like you're not like the movie's not made for you it, sure. and it's interesting because is is California before Pulp Fiction yes with a K yeah, 93, I think. So, that's a movie that sort of fits what he's talking about there. Mm-hmm. But fits it in a way that's contrived. Like, California is a very studio-friendly movie that's meant to play on the angst of, like, teenagers who want to come see that. Whereas Pulp Fiction is something transcendent. That might have some elements of that. And I don't think of Pulp Fiction as a grungy movie yeah. at all. Pulp Fiction is a very bright, well lit. I mean, aside from a couple of scenes like the Vincent like speeding in his car after doing heroin scene. Um, this is one I can think of specifically. But yeah. very, very colorful movie. Yeah. Just because it deals with like like reprobates doesn't make it grungy necessarily, and it's just it, it's a misinterpretation of what's being said in that movie. Yeah, I would say, uh, yeah, even those characters aren't grungy. I was going to say like Eric Stoltz and stuff like that, but just in looks wise, they're maybe a little bit more. It seems like a pretty gross place, like the carpet <laughs> yeah. and eating the you know, cereal being in, your... in his robe. You yeah, know, still like you know, you know, mid you know at night. I guess like in the evening, kind of. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's dark out. Yeah, because yeah. he pulls up and hits the mailbox and it's dark outside yeah, when he brings yeah. her in. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I just, I, that's how I took that, was that somebody who obviously was a little older at the time. And, sure. Just, um, yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I saw. I had but again, all, I had like, I, I don't, stuff, I, don't so I saw it 14 times in the theater. That's a lot. That's more than I saw. I, I want to go back to that quote. Yeah. He complains about things being like cloyingly sweet, right? Mm-hmm. So isn't That's how it used to be. isn't this the natural like cloying is not a positive adjective, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's it's a negative. So if you can recognize the fact that things were cloyingly sweet and this is the opposite of that. Pretty pretty. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's terrible. That, that guy's got bad opinions. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, all, all five of these movies, you know, really, really solid movies. I mean, well respected by critics as well as, you know. Being on this list. So. This was, it was a hard list for me to make because there's actually a few movies that came close to taking the place of some things. Like and, what? um, Wages of Fear is one Wages that I love. Really um, I'm uh, sure I can make some list someday for you. Yeah, I really love Wages of Fear. Uh, If by Lindsay Anderson, which is a really, like, I don't know how many people know If. I don't think I've ever seen um, it. It's a, takes place in an English boys' school. But just a really good movie. I like Lindsay Anderson a lot. Um, you might have made me watch that now that I think about it. Maybe. Yeah. Taxi Driver, The Tin Drum. Uh, Kage Musha probably would have been included had we not have just talked about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, difficult just because, like, I love all of those movies. Jingoku, mm-hmm. um, Japanese movie from, like, the late 60s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um. But I, I felt that all five of these movies just represented, maybe I would take the conversation off and replace it with one of those movies, maybe. Um, it could have been like a top 10, it could have even probably been a top 15. And again, I think that speaks volumes to how much more in tune the Palm Door is with the actual importance of film, as opposed to the Academy Awards being about the film that they feel is more important to give credit to that particular year and there's some really bad academy award winners i can't wait to do those lists because man the academy awards are the oscars are terrible in a lot of ways but but it was fun it was yeah. and i really enjoyed like going through the winners yeah and, it was nice to uh Verdi and i hadn't seen yet but it was nice going back through some of those older movies yeah. i haven't seen in close to 20 years and watch them again yeah 14 times in the theater huh yep my favorite I pulp fiction my favorite pulp fiction memory um, I think it was maybe the third or fourth time we'd seen it. We were we went on a Saturday to a matinee, and that was when like the Regal matinee was like three fifty, yeah. so you could just like we oh, would go see remember, everything. Yeah. Um, we went to Taco Bell, and Taco Bell had shit. Tacos were like soft tacos were super cheap. I can't remember how much they were. We ended up getting like a twelve pack of soft tacos and having to sneak it in under our coats, and then we just sat there and ate soft tacos. Like, we seriously got, like, 24 soft tacos. Yeah. Me and, like, two other friends. And just yeah. ate, like, soft tacos and watched Pulp Fiction for, like, I don't know, like, the fourth yeah. time. Back when gas was probably, like, 99 oh, cents. Oh, yeah, probably and, less than that. You know, cigarettes were $1.15 a pack. Or well, I wasn't smoking back then, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. No, not even $1.15. I, I remember getting cigarettes for... Yeah, like, me yeah, around yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember when they broke $2. It was, like... I don't know. I was yeah. outraged that uh-huh. I had to all of a sudden pay more than a dollar eighty for a pack of cigarettes, yeah. and now it's like it's crazy. Like I, yeah. if I get them for under yeah. seven dollars, I feel like I've like <laughs> right. somehow yeah. like on some hot degree. deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's like oh man, I hope nobody knows they're this cheap. Uh, uh, okay, well, thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Uh, please, um, if you have any list ideas, feel free to email us at two guys five movies at gmail That's the number two and the number five two guys five movies. Um, You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Have a good night. Yep, thank you.